Welcome. Oh, sorry, my computer. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> shit, shit just started like trying to update on my computer right when I hit record. Okay, we're good. <sighs> All right, <laughs> hey guys. Are we? <laughs> I think we're good now. Okay, I'm just All leaving right. this shit in. I don't. Even yeah, that's what now. I was. That's what I was gonna ask. But I was like, I don't want to mess it up. If you are yeah. gonna edit it out, but. Uh... No, we're good. Look, guys, we're human. And sometimes <laughs> our computers decide to do automatic updates right as we begin to record this podcast. <laughs> and there's not a lot that we can do about it. My name is Amelia Amploro. I am Scotty Milder. This is the weirdest thing. Yes, and we are your hosts. We're ready to talk to you about the weirdest stuff we found out in this, this crazy world <laughs> this week. Yeah. So I think yeah. I'm going first. You are going first. So uh, to kind of build off of my epic hours long H.P. Lovecraft biography <laughs> last week. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of like a, it was like the Gone with the Wind episode. It was, it was our Gone in, with the Wind In terms episode. of length. It was like Gone with the Wind with Cthulhu. Yeah. Um, and yeah. racism, which makes, which tracks. So there we that go. That does track. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to uh, dive into the life of kind of who I think of as like the anti-Lovecraft. Awesome. In the horror world. So this is again building up to StokerCon this weekend. Uh, that that's the big yearly convention where they uh, give out the Bram Stoker Awards. It's put on by the Horror Writers Association. And this week I'm going to be talking about Clive Barker. Nice. So, like I said, Clive Barker, I think of him as kind of the anti-Lovecraft, where like Lovecraft was a conservative racist. Um, Clive <laughs> Barker's uh very sorry, it's yeah. just so weird. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Sorry. Continue. I'm not uh, laughing about his racism. It's just so weird. Clive Barker is this like progressive gay man. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft kind of redefined the horror genre at the beginning of the century. And uh, Clive Barker kind of redefined it at the end of the 20th century. H.P. Mm. Uh, Lovecraft's dead. Clive Barker is not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Good. And so like, I think I mentioned it last week, like the the four pillars for me of horror writers that really were just like the big earliest inspirations for me were Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, and Clive Barker, and mm -hmm. Shirley Jackson. But I discovered Shirley Jackson a little bit later, I would say. Mm -hmm. My memory of just where this all started was way back in like 1991. <laughs> okay. I remember going to the mall with my mom in Santa Fe. And whenever we would go to the mall, like when I was younger, she'd just park me in the KB Toys, if you guys remember KB Toys. I remember when your parents would just leave you places while they went and did their shopping and they were like, don't let anything happen to you. Yeah, we hope you don't get abducted. Yeah, that was the <sighs> 80s for you. <laughs> Oh, wow. um, but as I got a little bit older, uh, my mom would just park me in the Walden books. Mm -hmm. um, it was right there by the food court in Vialand Mall. And this was around when I kind of, it was probably late elementary school getting into middle school. I would just always wander over to the horror section and look at all the book covers. Mm -hmm. But my mom would not let me get the books for a long time. So I was stuck with like, you know, my Dragonlance books and things like that. 
But eventually, I think probably when I was 12, she was like, fine, do what you want. So I started with Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. That was the first horror novel I ever read. Wow. And it's famously his scariest book. So like I did not start easy. <laughs> yeah. You just dove right just in headfirst into right the Right in headfirst. And but I loved it. And so from there, the next one was HP Lovecraft. It was uh I, you horror fans probably remember Del Rey books put out these paperbacks that had really fucked up art from Michael Whalen, uh, who's he's Still around today. Uh, he's a very famous horror sci-fi fantasy artist. There's just really, really upsetting artwork on these book covers. And so I was like, this looks awesome. So I bought them. <laughs> and the books really did not match the artwork at all. Oh, it's wow. Yeah, well, it's just like, I didn't realize it was like turn of the century, like gothic. Okay, that makes where, sense. Like, you never see the monster, you know. Um, but I still, I love the books. And then uh, right after that was Clive Barker. And, you know, Stephen King, he was kind of like my entry gateway drug, so to speak. H.P. Lovecraft was like the, oh, this is the mountain I have to climb to understand this genre. Mm. But Clive Barker was the guy that just like rearranged the neurons in my brain. So let's, uh, let's dive in. So Clive Barker, he was born October 5th, 1952 in Liverpool. His mother was named Joan. She was a school welfare officer and his father was named Leonard Barker. He was a personnel director for an industrial relations firm. Uh, so the fuck does that mean? I have no idea. And I did have a moment where I was like, I should look that up. And I was like, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody. Nobody. Like, <laughs> you're like nobody cares and then i'm like what the hell does that mean <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry no when i was talking about stephen king when i told the stephen tabby king story mm -hmm. uh, i told this story about this traumatic experience he had when he was a young child where he saw his friend get hit by a train oh right 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 well it turns out clive had kind of a similar experience really um yeah oh before i move on i'm gonna go ahead and give my sources here so yes wikipedia of course the post-mortem podcast with mick garris uh mick garris if you guys don't know he's mostly does he's a director he mostly does tv movies but he's done a lot of the stephen king adaptations mm. uh like the stand miniseries things like that Okay. And he's got this podcast called Postmortem where he just interviews all sorts of horror figures. So very recently, within the last couple of weeks, he actually interviewed Clive Barker. So that's a very recent interview. Very, very cool. good interview. If you're a fan, I, I strongly recommend listening to it. Also, an article from the New York Times from 1991. It's called The Splatterpunk Trend and Welcome to It. An article from, I did not write down what it was from. I think it was from- Oh, like, I hate it when that happens. I know. I think it was from the Sci-Fi Channel website. Um, this is from December 16th, 2012. The article is Gore Guru Clive Barker wakes from hell raising seven day coma. Um, and I'll wow, that's a headline. That's a headline. And I'll talk about that here in a little okay. bit. Uh, here's another headline <laughs> from the Jeez. Guardian, October 30th, 2017. Clive Barker. Pinhead was inspired by hardcore S&M club in New York, where I watched people getting pierced for fun. Hell yes. Also an article from iHorror from January 26, 2019. Clive Barker clears up rumors about his health, hints at new things to come. And just a ranker article or list, I guess you could say, facts about Clive Barker, the hell-raising horror legend. Okay, so anyway, back to what I was saying. So Stephen King had this traumatic experience saw his friend get hit by a train. When Clive was three years old, he and his family went to see an air show in Liverpool. 
And at this air show, a famous French skydiver, a guy named Leo Valentin, it was going to be his last performance. And he was going to attempt human flight using these bird-like wings. He had done it before, basically jumping out of an airplane and then spiraling down on these like wooden canvas wings down to no. the ground. Valentin was very famous at the time. He was known as the most daring man in the world. He had started off as a paratrooper, a French paratrooper, and then became a parachute instructor where he developed these unique body positions that allowed him better control in the air. So in 1948, he set a record for the longest free fall without a respirator. It was 15,600 feet. And then he beat that record a few years later with a free fall of more than 20,000 feet. Mm-mm, I don't so, like this. Well, I think you can guess where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> so he was really well renowned for these these free fall jumps, but he really wanted to learn to fly like a bird. So he built these wings, quote unquote wings, out of canvas and like wood. And he started jumping out of planes. Um, so in May of 1954 was his first real jump where he kind of was able to actually have some stability. He jumped from the wing of an airplane, spiraled down to the ground. He also claimed that he was able to fly for three miles using these wooden wings. But I think that's like a a suspicious claim, most likely. And then he was going to retire. So this was billed to be his final performance, May 21st, 1956, at the Whit Monday Air Show in Liverpool. He was going to do another of these wing jumps at the Liverpool airport in front of a crowd of 100,000 people. And this included Paul McCartney and George Harrison of the Beatles. Oh. Yeah. So here's a quote. This is from that post-mortem podcast. This is Clive Barker talking about this. It's not a perfect transcription because I was literally just listening to the podcast and typing it out. And you also, you have to like imagine it in a really raspy Liverpudlian accent. which Okay. not going to try to replicate. Thank so you. We're, said, all, we're all grateful for we're that. All very grateful for this. <laughs> so he said, it was high summer and it was very, very hot. We had gotten the car, the two families, my aunt, my uncle, my dad, my mom, me, and my cousin, Philip, who is younger than I. We got into this very, very stuffy little Morris Minor, and we drove not to the airport itself because we didn't have enough money to get into it. We had to wait outside to get in, as it were, at the limits of the airport, the fence, the boundary which happened to be a small road, barely a road, frankly, a track on the other side of which was the airport directly opposing a huge cornfield. So we all got out and we watched this tiny little plane way, way up. And I was three. I really didn't know what was going on. I knew I was able to keep watching the plane, which I did. There was a barely, barely audible drone. So we watch and we watch. Gradually, I get the idea. Even at three, I get the idea there's a guy up there and he's coming down. I didn't get the bit about the wings at all, but my mom, my Auntie Brenda, and her sister did. They seemed to notice before anybody else that something had gone wrong. Leo Valentin, in his last performance, was really going to give his last performance. An accident happened. His wings had caught on the superstructure of the airplane and basically been smashed. That wouldn't have been a problem if he had just pulled the cord on the parachute and he could have drifted down. He did pull the cord, but the trashed wings caught in the parachute and it wouldn't open. It candled, as a parachutist would say. What my auntie Brenda and my mom realized was that he was falling. And he was falling, I think it was 128 miles an hour which is the fastest you can possibly fall. So panic spreads amongst the adults, two wives, two husbands. I remember this probably more clearly than anything else. My mom began to shriek and she was not a shrieker. What I didn't realize was that they understood that his trajectory was going to deliver him very close to us. And the closer he got, the bigger he got. Now I sort of have to pass the narrative over to my father's memory because for me, I was bundled into a car with two very, very panicked ladies. My little cousin, Philip, was bawling. It was a hot little car and I didn't want to get into it. I wanted to see what all the trouble was about and my father saw him hit the ground about 10 yards from where we were 
he was the first to get to the body. And so he goes on. Yeah. Yeah. He goes on to describe his father walking up at first, not being able to see him, but seeing the shape carved out of the corn. Mm. And then when they found him, he was face down and they rolled him over and he was quote, not broken, but was clearly dead, had blood on his face. Mm. Um, So he was killed on impact. This is something that just stuck with Clyde Barker. And what's kind of different about this than the Stephen King story is that Stephen King has always maintained he does not remember having seen his friend get hit by the train. Like this Mm -hmm. was a story his mother told him later. Clive Barker clearly remembers this story. Yeah. So he refers to Leo Valentin in a lot of his novels and stories later on, probably most directly in his children's novel, The Thief of Always, which came out in the early 90s. He also often refers to cornfields, particularly in his story In the Hills, The Cities, which I'm going to read an excerpt of in a little bit. And what I find kind of interesting, Clive Barker is also a painter, aside from being a writer and a filmmaker. And he even addresses this on the Mick Garris podcast where it's like, Before he even really consciously realized the connection he was making, he would draw these like bird human hybrid. Like he would make, Ah. yeah. If you've read his stuff, there's a big recurring theme about this kind of post human transformation, like going from human and turning into something else, something Mm -hmm. monstrous and also beautiful and wonderful. And he kind of relates this back now to like this fascination with the idea of a bird man, which came from this experience. Okay. So Clive's, parents were both visual artists in their spare time uh, but they were like amateur artists i think he called them passionate amateurs Mm. Um, his mother was like a landscape artist and then his father he said he discovered this much later Um, his father was in the navy during world war ii at some point clive was going through his stuff and he found all these drawings that his father had made of like portraits of famous people Um, like rita hayworth he said and dwight eisenhower i think Wow. Was that they were very, very good, like skilled portraits. Mm. But when Clive himself, who was from an early age, a very artistic kid, was accepted into art school, both of his parents were, quote, appalled. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they told him that he was, quote, smarter than that. Uh, I, I mean, I gasp, but that 100% makes sense. Yeah. Well, particularly working class parents in the like 1960s mm-hmm. in Britain, like, mm-hmm. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so he he talks about, you know, really how his parents, like they had this artistic talent themselves, but it just never even occurred to them that like, this is something you could pursue as like a career. Yeah. So he ended up not going to art school. Um, he went to university, sort of to placate his parents because they asked him to quote, please go study something useful. <laughs> so... <laughs> So he decided to study philosophy. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a little bit of a middle finger. It's a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) I think he said he studied philosophy and English. He attended university for three years. I I couldn't find anywhere whether he like graduated or whether he left school. Um, He didn't really clear that up on the podcast, but he pretty much set his like artistic ambitions aside, visual art ambitions aside. He is now, aside from being a writer and filmmaker, he's a very renowned painter, particularly in the kind of horror world. Interesting. I'll, I'll post some of his work on, uh, at least one of his work on our social media. He's got an interest, like it's very much fantasy art, but done in this almost like cubist Picasso-esque style. It's really mm. interesting. He's had gallery shows all over the world. I mean, so he's he's become a very celebrated artist. But at the time he was like, nope I gotta focus on other things and he said what kind of took him a long time to get back to it is he actually had to wait until he had moved to California 
in the 90s after he was already kind of famous where he could actually build a studio that was big enough for the scale of the paintings he wanted to create one of which is 25 feet long oh come that's <laughs> it's it's a lot <laughs> that's huge yeah it's like it's a mural on the side of a building yes yeah but he has he has gotten back to it but in the meantime he had developed an interest in theater he started in theater when he was in high school both working as like an actor and a playwright but his theater career really took off when he and some friends and i believe this was actually in liverpool i don't think this was in london but i could be wrong about this he and some of his friends in the 70s formed a theater troupe called the dog company in 1978 some of these friends, including the actor Doug Bradley, who later would become Pinhead in the Hellraiser films. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, these were like constant collaborators for much of his life. And I think okay. even to this day. One thing that I find interesting about Clive Barker, like just looking at the time frame of this stuff, Clive Barker and Stephen King are kind of held as like separate generations. Like Stephen King started in the 70s. I think he there's something like old fashioned about Stephen King's work. Like mm. it's like small town America. There's a lot of like Shirley Jackson kind of at work, mm -hmm. Richard Matheson, Twilight Zone, things like that. Clive Barker came along about 10 years later and basically just blew the doors off the genre. And so they're seen as like this big gulf between them, but they're only like, they're less than 10 years different in age. But part of the reason why is like Stephen King started publishing when he was very young. Like that's right. Early mid twenties. Clive Barker had this whole career as a playwright going on for a good decade before he became known as a horror writer. While he was doing this theater company called The Dog Company, uh, he wrote, I think, nine plays for adults. And some of these are still performed to this day. So like his most famous ones are probably The History of the Devil, Frankenstein in Love, and then The Secret Life of Cartoons. I've seen video clips of like performances of Frankenstein in Love. Like mm -hmm. I think you can find some on YouTube. I mean, it's fucking bonkers. Like, and I think he has like 40 people in the cast or something. I'm sure he does. <laughs> like, I mean, there was at one point when you were talking to me about like trying to figure out your season for DCRT. Uh -huh. I almost wanted to like troll you by being like, well, you should read this Clive Barker play that has 40 characters. And I just, yeah, get into the, like immediately see the 40 characters. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. He also was doing plays for young audiences, which is interesting in 1982, 1983. And this is like an interesting thing about Clive Barker because he's so associated with like hardcore horror, extreme horror, splatter punk, but he's got this constant theme of also doing children's work young adult mm -hmm. stuff and i think it is all just it all goes back to this like his kind of no holds barred imagination mm -hmm. he'll just kind of do everything now this is a quote from the guardian article this was something i did not know until researching this according to an interview with him he supported himself during his early careers as a sex worker he says, I worked as a hustler in the 1970s because I had no money. I met a lot of people you'll know and some you won't. Publishers, captains of industry. The way they acted and the way I did, to be honest, was a source of inspiration later. Sex is a great leveler. It made me want to tell a story about good and evil in which sexuality was the connective tissue. Most English and American horror movies were not sexual or coquettishly so. A bunch of teenagers having sex and then getting killed. Hellraiser, the story of a man driven to seek the ultimate sensual experience, has a much more twisted sense of sexuality. Mm. 
So that's interesting because yeah. I think you see it play out in some of his fiction. And mm-hmm. that was something I never knew about him until now. Now, he he talked later about how when he was younger, like when he was a teenager, he had some relationships with older women. But by the time he was 18, 19 years old, he had pretty much come out as gay to himself. And I think so to his bef- friends. Sorry, before he was 18, he had mm-hmm. he had like sexual relations with older women. Older women. I don't know the context of what that means. I don't know how much older. And the thing is, not to be too like heteronormative about anything, Mm. but if you look at pictures of Clive Barker, particularly when he was younger, he was a good looking dude. I can kind of understand like the story about him becoming a hustler where like he had some currency there, I think. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gave him this entry into this world that he may not have had otherwise. Yeah. Now, by the time he was like 18 or 19, he had come out to himself. And I think, to I'm not sure to his family, but definitely to his friends. Okay. He was living openly as a gay man. And and at this time, you know, he was really developing like a reputation as a playwright, doing these dark, baroque, just like sprawling pieces. Like I said, like Mm -hmm. 40 characters, just like the thing that I think typifies Clive Barker in every medium is just, you can tell here's a guy with like an unrestrained amount imagination mm-hmm. like even the most quote normal clive barker story is going to be absolutely bonkers and batshit mm-hmm. i've read some of his plays like even back then they were bonkers and batshit but in like really interesting ways but while he was doing this he was kind of burning himself out on theater he would work on the plays during the day because he was like a professional playwright he was getting paid for this stuff but then he'd go home at night and just start working on these short stories just for fun so here's this quote about that this is also from the post-mortem podcast so just apply your Liverpudlian accent to this. Apply. Um, I had it in my head that I wanted to do something of significance, but I had a lot of interests, a lot of disparate interests, if you will. In fact, the writing of the short stories, which was the thing which was to mean the most in terms of me finding an audience, was sort of accidental. I was writing short stories for fun, showing them to people you either know or would know by name, like Pete Adkins and Doug Bradley, a little group of maybe six people that I showed these stories to. And like I said, Doug Bradley was, he later would go on to play Pinhead. And then Pete Atkins actually later would develop the first two Hellraiser sequels. So um, just so you know who those guys are. And these were handwritten. I didn't type them. I've never typed. It's a form of madness, but I've been doing it for so long. I can't imagine doing it any other way. I was working with words. I've been commissioned to do three plays for a company, and I wrote those within a couple years. And those were big plays with a cast of about 40 people. And I was pretty much written out in terms of doing my theater stuff. So I went to my theater agent, Bernard, and said, I've got these short stories. I'd had them typed out. Rawhead Rex was one of them. Sex, Death, and Starshine was another one. There were five of them. I gave them to Bernard, who was a gay man, as I am, and he was appalled. He was appalled. And he said, (laughs) quote, these are horrible. And I said, yeah, they are, aren't they? <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> it sounds yeah. so gleeful. Like he's <laughs> well, like, I know. I know. It's They're funny. terrible. Like he's, I think I looked it up. He's 68 years old now. Mm-hmm. And even in this interview, which like I said, is within the last month. And he's had all these health problems, which I'll get into. Like there is this just gleefulness about it. And the gleefulness about the transgressiveness of it. You know, Mm -hmm. just like no fucking rules. He was Mm -hmm. not interested in any fucking rules whatsoever. But so this theater agent of his, he did go ahead and pass them on to a publishing company. The first publisher he showed them to was just horrified and refused to publish them at all. But eventually another publisher purchased them for about 2,000 pounds. This was around like the early 80s. Okay. Um, Clive immediately ran into issues with the editor over his short story, In the Hills, The Cities, which is... Sidebar. I mean, it's in it's 
one of my top three favorite short stories. Like I talked about the yellow wallpaper on an uh-huh. episode. Mm-hmm. This is like right up there with it. It's what's, one of, the, what's the name of it? In the Hills, the Cities. Okay. In the Hills, comma, the Cities. The reason that this ran into problems is that it had a, for the time, graphic depiction of gay sex. Oh, so this editor, yeah. she wanted to cut the story altogether. And he was like, uh, here's your money back. I'm going to take these and I'm going to publish them elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, a week later, she reached out to him again and said, well, can we at least censor it? This is from the podcast. He said, quote, absolutely fucking not. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> it basically was like, I didn't get into this to have you tell me what I can and can't write. Yeah. This is a thing that pops up with Clive Barker over the years. You know, his books are crazy, like sexual, violent, but the stuff that gets people clutching their pearls is the homoerotic content. So I'm going to read that section of the story in the Hills of the City so you can see what exactly just got everyone so hot and bothered. I don't think we do, but I guess if we have any young listeners, I'm not going to say earmuffs, (laughs) but, you know, maybe proceed with caution. Or if you're listening with a kid, I guess maybe know this. There's I mean, some, if you're already past there's me some hot, about, gay, scary sex coming yeah. up. Yeah. You're already past me talking about him being a hustler and stuff. So I think you guys are fine. I know. Maybe maybe our, our content warning is a tad late. Yeah. <laughs> um, we never get it right. I know. We really <laughs> never do. So this is uh, just prepare yourselves to clutch some pearls. Okay. Uh, it was good love they made. Good, strong love. Equal in pleasure for both. There was a precision to their passion. Sensing the moment when effortless delight became urgent when desire became necessity. They locked together limb around limb, tongue around tongue, in a knot only orgasm could untie. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, continue. Okay, so I left out at the knot that only orgasm could untie. Their backs alternately scorched and scratched as they rolled around exchanging blows and kisses. In the thick of it, creaming together, they heard the fut, fut, fut of a tractor passing by but they were past caring. They made their way back to the Volkswagen with body threshed wheat in their hair and their ears, in their socks and between their toes. Their grins had been replaced with easy smiles. The truce, if not permanent, would last a few hours at least. The car was baking hot and they had to open all the windows and doors to let the breeze cool it before they started toward Nozi Pazar. It was four o'clock and there was still an hour's drive ahead. As they got into the car, Mick said, well, we'll forget the monastery, eh? Judd gaped. I thought I couldn't bear another fucking virgin. They laughed lightly together, then kissed, tasting each other and themselves, a mingling of saliva and the aftertaste of salt semen. So like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But, and I know this like gave you the giggles, but the fact that this, like he's literally got descriptions and other stories of people's faces being pulled off, like removing a balaclava. Right. The fact that this is what got people all upset. Well, I mean, sex has a has a way of doing that. And I'm sure yeah. if I was reading this, it probably wouldn't have been so I think you were laughing at Scotty <laughs> reading this, this is what I guessed. But I mean, like, it's just amazing to me, like the 80s. <sighs> this was like you said, this is the era where you would just like turn your kids loose on the street and sort of hope that they came home. I mean. And yet it was, I think, specifically the line about the aftertaste of salt semen. Everyone just had a fucking like connection yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I I was going to say it's understandable and I guess it is understandable because people are weird about sex. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. 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 That's it. That's, 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 that's all I got. <laughs> but yeah, but this would, this would just pop up off and on throughout the years. So like his 1995 novel sacrament, I remember reading it. I believe I was a senior in high school. Like it has, uh, I don't even think it has any particularly explicit sex. I mean, I think there is some in it, but the protagonist was gay mm-hmm. and the publishers freaked out about that. He had an earlier novel, a magica that has a character who has AIDS. And people freaked out about that. Mm -hmm. So just like we're in the era of gay panic. And so we talk about how like controversial Clive Barker was. I just think you need to like frame it that way because I don't think it was as much about the violence and stuff as people like to make it out to. Mm -hmm. It, It was, here's a gay man. Yeah. And he ended up coming out publicly, I want to say in the mid 90s. But he gave an interview where he said he was gay. And I kind of remember watching it and being like, I mean, yeah, duh. Like it was not in any way a surprise right just he he had been he had been working with these themes in his stories for a long time so Mm -hmm. so let's get to the books of blood which is what he's probably even to this day probably the most known for Okay. So these stories were published in a series of at first three, but then the next year they released three more anthologies. So it's the Books of Blood volumes one through six. The first three were released in 1984. They had uh, an introduction by a horror author, also Liverpudlian, named Ramsey Campbell, who's one of those like, if you're a horror fan, you know that name, Ramsey Campbell, but if you're not, you probably don't. Kind of thing. Yeah. But even more important was that the books were famously blurbed by Stephen King. Oh, okay. And it's kind of seen as Stephen King, who, by the way, was still a pretty young man. Yeah. Like, he's in his 40s, I guess. But he said, I have seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. <laughs> so, yeah. So this was kind of seen as like Stephen King passing the torch. Mm-hmm. The motto for the books that everyone associates for the books. I, I can't remember if it's like the dedication or it pops up somewhere is everyone is a book of blood. Wherever we're opened, we're read. In full disclosure, I have that tattooed on my body. Yeah, I was like, don't you have that? I feel like I know that. I feel like yeah. I've seen it tattooed on skin. Yeah, okay. it's on my arm. Okay, that's yeah. why. We I should do, huh? clarify, that's the part of my body that Amelia is looking at. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the stories in the Books of Blood that people might recognize were The Midnight Meat Train, In the Hills of the Cities, which I just mentioned, New Murders in the Rue Morgue, Son of Celluloid, and Rawhead Rex. These were kind of in the first three volumes. And then in the later volumes, you have the stories, The Inhuman Condition, Babel's Children, and then probably most importantly, a story called The Forbidden, which later became the basis for the movie Candyman. Ooh, oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, I'm going to read, just to give you a little more just sense of like his kind of, he. one thing I love about Clive Barker, like he's one of those writers that I can't read all the time because just his language is so dense and vibrant that it it can be almost overwhelming and it's very like showy like Clive Barker is not like I I was listening to a podcast recently and they were talking about James Cameron films and how Mm. they were talking about how Terminator 2 is like a dad movie and how it's like super obvious because there's a voiceover in the middle of the movie where Sarah Connor is like I looked at the Terminator with my son and I realized this is the best father my son could ever have (laughs) but they were talking about like you know it's easy to like say like oh, James Cameron is bad at subtlety, but that's kind of different than like being purposefully unsubtle. Mm -hmm. And that's Clive Barker. It's like, he's not interested in subtlety. It's like out there. He's throwing it all out there. This is from the story in the Hills of the City. So just give you an idea of what the story is about. It's about these two gay men who have just read the 
uh, giggle-inducing sex scene. From. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> One of whom is like this right-wing journalist and the other is like his younger lover. They're traveling through Eastern Europe. Their relationship is kind of like on the rocks. And they stumble on these two villages where the people of the towns lash themselves together and form these basically giants that then have like a ceremonial battle with each other. Okay. I think they do it like every 10 years or something. Okay. But this time something goes wrong and one of the giants collapses. So this is that section from the story. Podujevo was screaming, a death cry. Podujevo is the name of the village. Someone buried in the weak flank had died of the strain and had begun a chain of decay in the system. One man loosed his neighbor and that neighbor loosed his, spreading a cancer of chaos through the body of the city. The coherence of the towering structure deteriorated with terrifying rapidity as the failure of one part of the anatomy put unendurable pressure on the other. The masterpiece that the good citizens of Podujevo had constructed of their own flesh and blood tottered, and then, a dynamited skyscraper, it began to fall. The broken flank spewed citizens like a slashed artery spilling blood. Then, with a graceful sloth that made the agonies of the citizens all the more horrible, it bowed toward the earth, all its limbs disassembling as it fell. The huge head that had brushed the clouds so recently was flung back on its thick neck. 10,000 mouths spoke a single scream for its vast mouth, a wordless, infinitely pitiable appeal to the sky, a howl of loss, a howl of anticipation, a howl of puzzlement. How, that scream demanded, could the day of days end like this in a welter of falling bodies? Yeah. So what what happens is the other city seeing the one city essentially die goes insane because the people essentially form a hive mind and it just Ah. starts lumbering through this area of Eastern Europe and these two British gay men kind of stumble on it. And there's a description later of like the insane city just stumbling through the hills and you see like dead bodies hanging out of it and stuff. It's <sighs> it's intense. Like there's an intensity to Clive Barker's writing that is kind of like not like any other writer. Mm-hmm. And it's not about like the gore and the violence. It's just like I said, this vibrancy and this showiness in the language. Like, mm. okay, so the books of blood just kind of hit like hit the genre kind of like an atom bomb. There was nothing like this. Like it's interesting. I think H.P. Lovecraft, as I talked about last week, was a visionary writer. He redesigned the genre from what it was. He kind of took it out of this like stilted gothic world. And you added this cosmicism to it, which was really new. Mm-hmm. Stephen King, who I love, when he came around, he wasn't he wasn't a visionary. Stephen King was just kind of building off of, like I said, The Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt, Richard Matheson, Shirley Jackson. And what I think Stephen King was sort of better at than almost anybody was working within those confines just to create these iconic stories that you right. characters, Pennywise, Cujo, Christine, that you just, you will remember forever. Clive Barker is much more like Lovecraft in that he was a total visionary. Mm-hmm. There was nobody doing this before. And when he came along, it just completely redefined the genre the way Lovecraft did, which is interesting because Barker has talked about how he's not really a Lovecraft fan. He sees all the things we were talking about last week. He's racist. He's conservative. Clive Barker is like, we need to kind of like get out of the shadow of Lovecraft. Yeah. And that's what he did. So like some of the things that he's known for are these just wildly fantastical plot lines, really frank depictions of sex and violence, including kink, BDSM, and then often like taking horror from the sort of what we think of like the typically 
pastoral setting and like really focusing on in on these like gritty urban environments. Mm. And because of this and because of the time frame, he is seen as sort of kicking off what's called the splatterpunk genre. Okay. And he's ref- often referred to as like the godfather of splatterpunk. So I'm going to talk a little bit about splatterpunk. <laughs> Please, because I have no um, idea what that is. Full disclosure, not my favorite genre, although there are some writers who are associated with splatterpunk that I absolutely love. In the 80s and even in the 90s, because I remember people still fighting about this in the 90s when I was getting deeply into horror fiction. There was this fight that erupted between people who preferred, quote, quiet horror and then the like loud garishness of stuff like splatterpunk. So quiet horror is much more like Lovecraft. You know, okay. it's, it's suggestion. It's innuendo. It's about like hinting at the horror rather than showing the horror. Mm-hmm. The splatterpunks were like, fuck that. And just went the other way. So splatterpunk, it originated in the 1980s. It grew out of a lot of things like the avant-garde art movement, punk rock, heavy metal subcultures, 1970s grindhouse films, but also like the 60s counterculture. Splatterpunks distinguished by graphic depictions of sex and violence. Also usually in these like gritty urban noirish environments focuses not on like, you know, the normal person who's encountering encountered by horror like in a Stephen King story you know mm-hmm. there's no like small town suburban dads in a splatterpunk story it's like gutter punks artists okay you know it really is like of the counterculture sort of about the counterculture and not like the hippie counterculture we're talking more like the post-punk counterculture right. so here's a quote from that uh new york times article this is from 1991 which was kind of like the tail end of splatterpunk so new york times like yeah way to be like right at the cutting edge here like the genre is almost done at this point but anyway and they're like here's the thing called splatterpunk exactly. you're welcome everybody we've just discovered it yeah so this is what they had to say they said over the last few years however there has been a significant shift in horror fiction the genre's traditional jolt of fright now is provided by acts of violence described in elaborate gruesome detail the results at their most artful and bold have included the serious popular fiction of thomas harris whose novels red dragon and the silence of the lambs are full of a careful, measured dread. At its most snobbish and callow, the new horror has led to Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. Okay, I was wondering about that. Okay. Yeah, class animus is a slaughtering ground. And with the rise of so-called splatterpunk fiction, an aggressively grubby underground movement now seeks to compete with more conventional horror writers like Mr. King, Peter Straub, and Dean Koontz. Most of this new horror fiction trades in the scariness of the scene, the notion that a reader will be frightened and entertained, question mark, by the explicit depiction of horrific acts, including murder and every sort of mutilation of the body. The writer commonly credited with coining the term splatterpunk, the novelist David J. Scow, put it this way. It's not enough to see the shadow behind the door. People want to see what's making the shadow, what it looks like, and how it comes apart. In splatterpunk, ghosts have given way to serial killers. Boo has been replaced by yuck. Mm. Things don't go bump in the night. They emit wretched, agonized howls. Okay. So, so that's Splatterpunk. So some of the writers, aside from Clive Barker, who are associated with Splatterpunk, are David J. Scow, who I mentioned. And I remember when I used to read Fangoria back in like the 90s, David J. Scow had a column and there was a picture of him. And even then I was like, okay, this fucking guy. And he's actually like... <laughs> He's a good writer. Actually, uh-huh. I do like some of his work, but there was just a presentation. Like he was wearing a black leather jacket and had this like long metal hair. And I'm like, mm. all right, I, I, I get you. I get you, boo. 
Yeah. Right. He's just lit. He's, he's deep in the aesthetic. He's deep in the aesthetic. Another writer associated with Splatterpunk is the writer, John Shirley, who actually started as a cyberpunk writer. And it should be noted that the terms kind of came around the same time. Cyberpunk is a subgenre of sci-fi from the early eighties. Splatterpunk, that term was kind of coined shortly thereafter, I think is like a play on cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. And then of course you get steampunk and everything since then. Philip Nutman, John Skip and Craig Spector, who are actually two of my favorite writers, Joran Lansdale, who's one of my favorite favorite writers, Poppy Z. Bright, and then Jack Ketchum, who I spent quite a bit of time talking about on our Sonny Bean episode, because he mm-hmm. wrote the book Off Season, which I talked about, kind of along with American Psycho as these deeply controversial books that were picketed and everything. Right, right, right. Jack Ketchum is interesting in this discussion because, so like I said, a lot of people try to trace Splatterpunk back to Clive Barker. Mm-hmm. He definitely had an influence on Splatterpunk, but Splatterpunk started before him. It really grew out of like 70s grindhouse movies, like I said, Mm -hmm. heavy metal and writers like Jack Ketchum, who, if I remember correctly, Off Season was published in like 81 or 82. I I didn't fact check that, but it was a good couple years at least before the Books of Blood came along. So it's like the groundwork had already been Right. Now, Splatterpunk kind of ran its course by the early 90s. I think like anything, like here's the problem I have with Splatterpunk. It goes back to what I was talking about on my Death Metal Murders episode, where I was uh-huh. telling the story of the fucking the shit of the dead story. Yes. Where like a lot of Splatterpunk, I read it and I'm just like, okay. Like, it's just like, ooh, you're so shocking. Right. Yeah. And it gets real boring real fast. (laughs) But it was, you know, like punk rock, it was this like, we're flattening conventions, we're in your face. And Mm -hmm. like punk rock, that's just not sustainable over time. (laughs) So like, by the early 90s, Splatterpunk was pretty much over. And even now there are authors who like to call themselves Splatterpunk, but it's like, you're not really doing what Splatterpunk did, because it's very specifically this counterculture thing. Right. On top of, it's not just gore and violence newer subgenres have kind of grown out of it like we talk about hardcore horror now also bizarro fiction has a lot of connections to splatterpunk but i just i find like when it's at its best some of these writers and like some of the writers like joe lansdale he's called a splatterpunk a lot of times it's like that dude writes everything like he's written westerns he writes crime thrillers he's i think he's written children's books like yeah he's got a couple novels that sort of fit splatterpunk but that's that's not who he is you mm-hmm. know if you guys don't know jora lansdale by the way if you've seen the movie bubba hotep it's based on a jora lansdale novella i always find it like when people talk about clive barker as being part of the splatterpunk genre it's like i think he was adjacent to it but he was very much doing his own thing and he really started moving away from what anything you would call splatterpunk within a few years so not long after the publication of the books of blood he published his first novel called the damnation game in 1984 I haven't read that in a really long time. I remember liking it. It's kind of like a deal with the devil kind of novel. I think it's set with the backdrop of like World War II and the Holocaust. Okay. His novella, The Hellbound Heart, was published in 1986. This is one of the things he's most famous for because it's what would become the basis for the Hellraiser movies. Okay. His short novel, Cabal, was published in 1988. This would be the basis for his movie, Nightbreed. So let's talk about the movies real quick because I think this is where Clive Barker, like even with the, you know, the blurb from Stephen King and all the recognition. And I think the Books of Blood had won like the World Fantasy Award, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. He was very well known in the horror 
horror world, but he kind of became for a few years there like a household name. Like his name was spoken in the same breath as Stephen King. Yeah. Like Stephen King was the top most famous horror writer and Rice was way up there as well. And then Clive Barker would be like right with them. Yeah. I think this came through the movie, specifically Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is like, you know, Stephen King had his five minutes where he was like, I'm going to be a movie director. And then he went and made Maximum Overdrive. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I can't remember if we've talked about it on this podcast, but I know you I and I have did. talked about it. I think we the did trailer the for episode. Maximum Overdrive yeah. because it is just coked out Stephen King. Oh, it's insane. I mean, like watching the trailer because he he features heavily in the trailer. I think that trailer is actually all him and some footage from the movie. Yeah. And it is like the guy is like vibrating. Yeah. <laughs> How like we're like, I just want to know if they were like, uh, just, I mean, just, yeah. yeah, point the camera at him and, and let's try to get something done. Yeah. Because this is yeah. what we're doing for the trailer. <laughs> and I mean, the movie Maximum Overdrive is also vibrating. Like, yes. it is, I mean, it is kind of a terrible movie and kind of amazing and mm-hmm. so much fun. Like, if you if you have not watched Maximum Overdrive, get in there. do yourself a favor. Like, yeah. You will have a good fucking time. Yeah, set expectations, like manage expectations. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, we're not I talking can, Citizen Kane here. Right. I think you can kind of watch it in a similar vein as as the room, where it's just like buckle in and 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 you know, watch watch the shit show unfold. I'll give it a little more credit than that. I think it's like watching it in the same vein as the room, but maybe a little more towards like the evil dead. It's Mm. not, it's got like the clunkiness of the room, but Mm -hmm. then just the manic energy of like the evil dead with an ACDC soundtrack. It's, it's amazing. Yes. Um, Well, Clive Barker also moved into directing. He had a very different approach (laughs) than Stephen King. He started with his movie Hellraiser, which came out in 1987 he went into directing because two of the stories from the Books of Blood, Rawhead Rex and the Midnight Meat Train, had already been adapted. I've never seen the Midnight Meat Train. I have seen Rawhead Rex. It is fucking awful. Like it, And not awful in like the fun Maximum Overdrive way. It is yeah. the most boring, just mediocre, like mid-80s mediocrity you can imagine. Just like that typical low-budget mid-80s monster movie. Terrible special effects. Like wooden acting. Like there's nothing to recommend about it. Well, Clive Barker is this visionary writer who I think was coming to like realize that he was something of a visionary. He was like, I can't like just turn my stuff over to Hollywood. I need Mm. to like do this myself. No experience in film. Had a lot of experience in theater, but like almost none in the film. But he managed to talk to a producer, a guy named Christopher Figg, who worked for New World Pictures. They agreed to finance the first Hellraiser movie on a budget of $900,000. It was initially given a seven-week shooting schedule, but they ended up upping it to 10 weeks. It was shot in 1986. It was originally... He wanted to call it Hellbound, you know, because it was based on his novel, The Hellbound Heart. Novella, I should say, Hellbound Heart. But Fig really pressed for it to be called Hellraiser. He just thought it would be, like, better on the poster. And I got a kind of like Weird Tales retitling all the Lovecraft shit. Mm-hmm. Like, Under the Pyramids becomes Escaping from the Pharaohs. Like, right. Yeah, Hellraiser's a better title. <laughs> the sequel, though, which was directed by his friend Peter Atkins, who he had done theater with, ended up being called Hellraiser 2 Hellbound. The working title was called Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. 
<laughs> so he had no no film experience, but he has spoken of it in the years since. So he had a really good experience making this movie. So he said, the cast treated my ineptitudes kindly and the crew were no less forgiving. For those of you guys who are horror fans, if you haven't watched Hellraiser in a while, I know it's on Netflix, or at least it was recently. Go back and watch that movie. It holds up. I've and never seen it. I'd be, oh man, I'd be so curious to see your reaction to it. I don't think he would like it, (laughs) to be honest. So I would always see, I would always see like clips and stuff of Pinhead. And he was very, Mm -hmm. he was very scared of me. And really all I, really all I want to know is, is if you find out how Pinhead came to be Pinhead. You do. I think in the third movie. Okay. You can tell me offline. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. So just a little bit about what, if, if you guys haven't seen it, just a little setup for what the story is. It, it follows a guy named Frank Cotton, who is like trying to dive into like the depths of pleasure and pain. It's an S&M novel is what mm. it is in an S&M movie. And, you know, he's he's traveling the world looking for these experiences, you know, these erotic, painful kind of S&M experiences. And nothing is quite getting him there. And then he hears about this puzzle box called Lamarckin's box. And supposedly if you open the puzzle box, it will open you up to worlds of pleasure and pain you can't even imagine so he finds the puzzle box and he opens it and when he does this opens a doorway to i mean i guess you could say hell Mm -hmm. but some other region where these creatures called the cenobites come through they're like oh you want pain yeah see that's why i would that's why i wouldn't do it yeah like i'd be like oh can i can i just get can i just get the pleasure one yeah. Can I, can I get a sans pain? Oh shit, they gave me the wrong Rubik's cube. <laughs> I got the Yeah, pain I wouldn't I wouldn't be like, you know what? Hashtag worth it. I would well, not. Well, and the thing about the Cenobites, so Pinhead being one of them, he's actually should properly be called the Hell Priest. That's what he's called. But he's never called Pinhead in anything other than like pop culture. Mm-hmm. And the other Cenobites, they come through and like you see the scars of their because they all started as human. And you see the scars of their own torment. So like Pinhead has the nails pounded into his head. Another one has these hooks. The one called the Chatterer has these hooks pulling his like lips back from his teeth. Mm-hmm. It looks like he's been flayed and burned, you know. Mm-hmm. But they come through and they pull Frank Cotton through into this world. And then that's just the setup of the movie. <laughs> I'll leave the rest for you. But it, it is, it's a it's an SM movie. What's really interesting about it is that Clive Barker is clearly fascinated by the danger of this world, but he approaches it pretty non-judgmental. Mentally. Mm. Um, and I think when, if you go back to his quote about being a sex worker, you know, he said a lot of the experiences I had back then kind of led to inspiration. So I think he's coming at it, not from a place of like, mm, isn't this, isn't this terrible, like moral mm-hmm. judgment. He's just like, this is how far it could go. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Maybe it's like even a little bit of an insider. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about Clive Barker. You know, I loved him when I was younger because his stuff was just so crazy and out there. And by the way, I should say, so the first Clive Barker novel I read was one called The Great and Secret Show. But then I went back immediately after I started reading the books of blood. And then I read The Hellbound Heart right around that time as well. So I would have been like 13. And man, was I too young for this stuff. (laughs) But I'm grateful for it now because it was it was eye opening. But you know, the more adult critical part of me, like what what I really respect about Clive Barker is that just how he just fearlessly pushed the genre in these directions, which by now seem very transgressive, you know, mm-hmm. overt homosexuality and homoeroticism, overt, like almost joy in 
like kink and fetish and pain mm-hmm. um and just flipping like sort of christian morals and like the conservative tendency that horror can have just flipping it totally upside down mm-hmm. and this is why i say he remade the genre because really no one was even stephen king who i love like there's something fundamentally like small c conservative about stephen king it's like here's the rational world here's the horror that is introduced and the story is about trying to get back to the rational world and clive barker is like yeah but doesn't the rational world suck like wouldn't you rather live in this crazy irrational world mm-hmm. So the the movie, it was initially rated X. He had to go ahead and do some censorship, which is, I think, why he's only, like, dabbled in movie making. I think he finds it really frustrating. But even the released version, like, even by today's standards, um, it's like, wow, it's still pretty extreme. And not necessarily that extreme in terms of the gore, but just thematically very extreme. Right. It was released in 1997, where uh, Ontario, the province of Ontario, immediately banned it for, quote, contravening community standards. The movie made a huge splash this is like i said where he kind of became a superstar he became known as both an author and a filmmaker and it was unsurprisingly a very controversial film so even like critics like would either rave about it or totally trash it so this is what roger ebert had to say about it okay he said it was as dreary a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror in many a long cold night This is one of those movies you sit through with mounting dread as the fear grows inside of you that it will indeed turn out to be feature length. This is a movie without wit, style, or reason. And the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize its bankruptcy of imagination. Like mixed review, I would say. I uh, yeah. Roger Eber, I uh... he was he was that way with David Lynch's Blue Velvet too. So like, uh-huh. and I always find it funny when you read these re- the, these just horribly offended reviews from Roger Ebert. I'm like, dude, you're the dude who like wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So like, get oh, over that's yourself. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He returned to filmmaking for the movie Nightbreed. Like I said, it was based on his novel Cabal. He did not have as good experience making this film. It was kind of taken away from him. He lost Final Cut, and so it was re-edited uh, without his approval. It did quickly become a cult film, but it was something of a box office flop. It was released in 1990, and then a director's cut was released in 2013. And then his third film was the movie Lord of Illusions. This was 1995. It was based on his short story, The Last Illusion, which comes from the Books of Blood. It was also butchered by the studio and is pretty much forgotten today. Like I watched it again recently and I actually had to track down a DVD of it because like you can't find it streaming anywhere. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, it's actually not a bad movie, but you can see it's just one of those. Yeah, the studio interfered you know, kind of situations. He's only directed those three films. Aside though from Hellraiser, the movie he's probably most associated with, I already mentioned it, is the movie Candyman, directed by Bernard Rose, who directed Immortal Beloved. Yep. That came out in 1992. It's generally considered probably to be the best of the Clive Barker adaptations. Either that or Hellraiser, kind of depends on who you talk to. I prefer Candyman, Mm -hmm. but I do love Hellraiser. But Hellraiser is one of those movies I can't watch all the time. I can pretty much watch Candyman Candyman. Like I can put it on at any time. I've been itching to watch it, especially after after hearing the story. I can't remember. Did we talk about this? The story, mm-hmm. the true story inspired yeah. Clive Barker. Is that how it went? No, I don't think so. So I think the way it worked, Clive Barker wrote this short story, The Forbidden, which is really very simple. It takes place in Liverpool. And it's about this young one. I can't remember if 
she's a professor or a grad student like she is in the movie, but she's in this like project in Liverpool trying to investigate this urban legend of the Candyman. And then the Candyman shows up and is basically like, the only way I can survive is if people believe in me. So be my victim. And that's kind of the whole story. The true story, once Bernard Rose was hired to direct it, he was like, I want to set it in America. I want to explore race relations. Like right. the forbidden and so, okay. doesn't. And then Bernard Rose found this story that you're referring to. Oh my God. It's an awesome um, story. It's an all it's it's I heard about it first on a fairly recent episode of My Favorite Murder. And I think her name is Ruthie May. I think it's Ruthie May, yeah. And you can kind of search it from there. But it is, you know, I'm a true crime fan. I really love listening to that podcast. I get a big kick out of it. And that story fucked me up real yeah. bad. Yeah. Real, it, real bad. Well, and that was one of those because I saw the movie when I was a kid and it got under my skin. Yeah. And then it was many years later that I decided discovered that this aspect of the story what was taken from this true story and that just utterly horrified me <laughs> mm-hmm. when you read the truth the ruthie may story uh, we won't go into it because it's pretty terrible but if you're interested in true crime and have a stomach for terribleness like just google ruthie may chicago and i think you'll mm-hmm. find it i think you'll find it and i think it's i think may is m-a-e yes i think that's right Mm m-a-e i think for me like i love hellraiser but you can kind of tell it's a director who is not very experienced with film bernard rose just he's one of those filmmakers that just is a very accomplished visual stylist and hellraiser is also very visually stylized but bernard rose he just he knows his shit yeah and then transporting it to chicago and even though he's a white english man exploring race and class divides in early 1990s america i just think it's really smart about how it does that what's interesting about that is like there was concern about having this white guy come in and tell the story Mm -hmm. so they actually went to black community leaders in chicago at the time and sort of pitched it to them and basically like do you have any objections and they were like no like why can't we have our own ghost stories and our own horror stories like Mm -hmm. he was actually very supported by the black community Mm -hmm. and a lot of black filmmakers particularly in the horror world point to Candyman as one of those like moments of sort of being like this is when I felt seen kind of moments. Jordan mm-hmm. Peele, who's producing the, I mean, they're calling it a reboot, but it's really, I believe, sort of a direct sequel to the original Candyman. When is that coming out? I want to watch it. It's supposed to come out around Halloween of this year. Okay. It was supposed to come out last year, but, but COVID. And one thing that I think is like, sort of shows they have a lot of faith in this is they were like, you know what? We think this movie's good enough. We'll wait a year because they really want to release it in theaters. They didn't want to cool. just dump it on HBO Max like everything else. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder um, Woman 84, we're looking at you. <laughs> Whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lord of Illusions is worth watching. Nightbreed is definitely worth watching. But like, if you're not a Clive Barker fan, I think you'll watch Nightbreed and be like, what the fuck even is this? Because mm-hmm. it's so weird. But if you just want to like dip your toes in the water of like Clive Barker film world Candyman's probably the place to start and then go from there to hellraiser okay so after his experience with lord of illusions i think he was just kind of done with hollywood in that sense he still produced things and involved with the industry but i think he really decided to go back to his focus on fiction or just really prioritize his focus on fiction and this is when he had also started working as a painter again so his work as a novelist around this time this is where i say like splatterpunk is just too limiting a genre to lump him into because his books just 
just became more like baroque and fantasy based still very dark still often very sexual but they kind of move out of like horror proper into a more dark fantasy space so probably the best of these is his novel weave world from 1987 he followed it with a book called the great and secret show which like i said that was my first experience of clive barker a magica in 1991 sacrament 1995 or 1996 and then galili 1998 and then he's just all the way up to this day still putting stuff out like i said he's been living as a gay man since he was 18 or 19 years old i'm not sure if this is when he officially came out publicly but he went on the radio show love line in 1996 um and that's when he talked about having the relationships with older women but how he then later came to identify as gay mm-hmm. if I remember correctly that's when it was like newspaper headlines horror novelist clive barker reveals that he's gay i think i remember seeing one headline that was like admits that he's gay And I was like, fuck off. Right. So he was in a relationship with a man named John Gregson from 1975 to 1986, and then was in a 13-year relationship with a photographer named David Armstrong, and they separated in 2009. Okay. So a couple other just later books I just want to mention briefly. If you're interested in Clive Barker, but you would like to maybe not go for the hardcore S&M stuff, Mm-hmm. Some good places to start are some of his kind of books for young young readers. So the most famous is probably his book, The Thief of Always. I think that's from like 90 or 91. And then he has a series of four books called The Books of Aberat. I think they started coming out in the early 2000s. And they're interesting. I actually haven't read them. But they're interesting because they're novels that are also illustrated with his paintings. So like visual novels. So don't get the Kindle version is what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. <laughs> don't get the audio version. Right. <laughs> like the paintings are very much uh part of it and then i believe this is his last book um i want was two three years ago was a book called the scarlet gospels i actually haven't read it yet but this one's interesting because it's actually a sequel to the hellbound heart mm. um so it's him going back into the hellraiser universe okay so let's talk about his health Okay. So in 2007, he went in to have some polyps removed from his, I believe from his vocal cords and it permanently damaged his voice. Mm. So when you listen to his interviews now, like if you listen to this post-mortem interview from a month or so ago, like he's got a very raspy voice now. Mm -hmm. More importantly though, in 2012, he went to a routine dentist appointment and this ended up with him in a seven day coma. What? This was kind of his like statement after. He says, my friends, Clive here. I'm at home now after a while in hospital, thanks to a nearly fatal case of toxic shock brought on by a visit to my dentist. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. In my case, the dental work unloaded such a spillage of poisonous bacteria into my blood that my whole system crashed, putting me into a coma. I spent several days in intensive care with a machine breathing for me. Later, my doctor said that they had not anticipated a happy ending until I started to fight repeatedly pulling at the tubes that I was constantly gagging on. After a few days of nightmarish delusions, I woke up to my life again, tired, 20 pounds lighter, but happy to be back from a very dark place. In here, in the world, I intend to stay. I have books to write, films to make, and paintings to paint. I seem to have come home with my sight clearer somehow and my sense of purpose intensified. Thank you all for your messages, your prayers, and love. What better reason to wake to life than knowing I have such friends? Again, thank you. My love to you always, Clive. Mm. I, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I believe I read that while he was in having this toxic shock, it actually caused him to have a couple strokes. 
mm-hmm. as well. So I'm not sure where his health is at now. Like you hear all sorts of rumors about Clive Barker's health all the time. And one thing, like when he was in the coma, there were rumors, and I remember reading these, you know, that he was dying of AIDS. Of you know, course. Like that, of course. So he has a quote about that from a few years later. I think this was from 2019. It's been very demoralizing to discover that some of the people that I trusted and loved were amongst the people who said these things, even though they fully understood that I was not incoherent and I was not stopping writing and so on. So it's been important to me to get out into the world and we'll do about five conventions this year, starting with Atlanta in a few weeks. We'll go to London almost certainly. So him basically being like, hey guys, like back the fuck off. Like, yeah, you're doing all right. And yeah, and the whole thing like, oh, Clive Barker's dying of it. I mean, it's just like, even this was like 2012, just even like the homophobia and gay panic. Like even yeah. Then. Yeah. Things come up all the time about his health. People worried about his health. All I can say about it is like, I, I hope he's doing well. Like, yeah. like H.P. Lovecraft is one of those writers. I'm fine with him being dead and consigned to history. <laughs> right. You know, but like, you know, with Clive Barker and Stephen King after he got hit by the van, it's just like, these, these are guys I just, I want to hang on to forever. Yeah. So I, I just, Clive, I hope you're doing okay. And from things I read, like, it sounds like you're doing pretty okay. Yeah. He's been working apparently on a novel called Deep Hill. He describes it as one of the scariest things he's ever written. How it mingled yeah, <laughs> fantastical creatures with real life issues threatening the world. Okay. It's speculated that it may be his final novel. Mm. I hope not. But yeah. you had a you you've had a really great career. You know, he's 68 years old, has some health yeah. problems. So it's like you you do what you gotta do, Clive, but I hope you stick around for a while. Yeah. And that is the story of one of my favorite writers, Clive Barker. Whoa, what a roller coaster. Yeah. And like I said, like part of why I wanted to talk about him was just like after steeping myself in the bullshit and racism of HP Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, Clive Barker, like he's so like the other side. He writes this intense, insane SM, deeply violent sexual work, but everything I've ever heard about him is just that he's like a nice guy like mm-hmm. i've never heard anything problematic about him i mean not to say that there's nothing not to I, say that there isn't but but i've never heard know. anything and like when i listened to this post-mortem interview on this podcast which is kind of what put it in my head that i wanted to talk about him on the podcast like he's a 68 year old man who's had strokes been in a coma mm-hmm. had his voice permanently damaged and you still hear just the giddy glee he has mm-hmm. about like talking about creativity talking about his work yeah so that's why i say he's kind of for me He's kind of the anti-Lovecraft. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. So um, it's still Asian American Pacific Islander month. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk to you and you all about the history of Yellowface. Sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia. I almost said Wikipedia. (laughs) Wikipedia. It's because of the next thing. Splinter News, Mm -hmm. uh, an article called Six White Actors Who Won Oscars for Playing People of Color. The Sundial, an article called Yellow Peril, an article from Time Magazine called Margaret Cho and Fans Speak Out About Whitewashing Asian Characters. Mm-hmm. Um, a Thesis and Dissertation by Megan Permida Liu, and that is titled Orientals in Hollywood, Asian American Representation in Early U.S. Cinema from mm. 2017. An article from Teen Vogue called Yellowface, Whitewashing and the History of White People Playing Asian Characters, and an article from The Hollywood Reporter. Um, again, just a little heads up this story will have some offensive racial language and slurs in it. 
again, it is in a historical context mm-hmm. and they're not my words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yellow face. Let's, let's sort of dig into what exactly that means. It's defined as the transformation typically through the use of prosthetics and or cosmetics, mm-hmm. wherein a non-Asian actor, usually Caucasian appears of Asian descent. But that's like the sort of literal, that is what yellow face is more symbolically. Yellow face is the manipulation and defining of the Asian race by non-Asian bodies. Right. Um, that's going to be important a little bit later on. So yellow face is obviously closely related to black face. Again, that is makeup or prosthetics used to make non-black actors, again, usually Caucasian, appear mm-hmm. black. One of the earliest known performances of yellow face was done in a theatrical play called An Orphan of China. And this was performed in 1767. Oh, yeah. Here in the US. And the, the so this play took place before really most Americans had had any actual real live experience with the people of Asian descent. And mm-hmm. so this this caused uh, many Americans first glimpse of the Asian culture to be viewed through the lens of yellow face and therefore fiction. Right. The idea of the exotic quote Far East predated the arrival of Asian immigrants and served to reinforce the idea of Asians as other and ultimately un-American, which, you know, we talked a little bit uh, yeah. about last week with the Exclusion Act right. um, and that kind of stuff that it was really, and it's been done with with immigrants from other, other parts of the world where it's really about making them seem dangerous, not only because of the fact that they're taking quote American jobs, but also that they are dirty, disease-ridden, alien, um, alien hedonistic harbingers of... <laughs> Like everything bad. Yeah. Yeah. So again, lots of pearl clutching here. Right. Lots of pearl clutching. The use of makeup and prosthetics to turn a Caucasian actor into a character of any race is usually done in a way that is like grotesque and overt. Right. Um, So like, we're not just talking about like, oh, we're just going to like, you know, put some like a different color or like a darker color of foundation. It's really more about like overemphasizing and exaggerating the physical attributes of another race and it's gross yeah, <laughs> like i mean if, yeah if, if you're out there and you're like what's the problem it's gross <laughs> i mean just i mean i don't recommend this but just google some blackface images and yeah it, and- it's pretty awful yeah. So way back in the day, D.W. Griffith had done Birth of a Nation, right? right. Which included actors in blackface. Right. And before that, he actually targeted Asians with yellow face in his films. Um, this is going to be our first instance of a slur in his films, The Chink at Golden Gulch and mm. Broken Blossoms. Mm. Okay. So here's an interesting thing post birth of a nation. And I didn't realize that it actually started with birth of a nation or like started post birth of a nation, but after birth of a nation, the use of blackface in dramatic roles was mostly done away with not completely, hmm. but after, but after that point, filmmakers weren't trying to pass off actors in blackface as black. Okay. What you would see was like a white character performing a blackface performance within the film. So the audiences watching it understood that it was that that the blackface was a performance and not meant to be a, a literal like an actual depiction of a black so person. So like like depictions of like minstrel shows and like this is right. like Al Jolson 
right? Right. Fred Astaire too, where it would be like, Hey, oh, really? here I am. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately. Well, uh, we're going to get to that in a bit. There's, okay. there's a fair amount of disappointing stuff that happens here. Yeah. But yeah, it would be like, I'm Fred Astaire and here I am dancing in this movie and we're going to take, you know, Oh, or I'm at this show and I'm going to put on some blackface, but you know that it's Fred Astaire in blackface. Do it mm-hmm. like nobody's like, Oh, that's a new black like, <laughs> character in the, in the thing. Right. right. In contrast, yellow face in films asks viewers to accept actors in yellow face as the stand-in for Asian performers. And this continues to be true uh, for red face, which is the portrayal of Native Americans by Mm -hmm. non-Native American peoples, and brown face, which is the portrayal of all of the following, which is Latinx, South Asians, Middle Easterns, and North Africans by Mm -hmm. usually Caucasian people. Right. Or other, I mean, there's a lot that happens within brown face that is just, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Okay. So we've talked about this a little bit, but all of this is rooted in ethnocentrism, uh, which I, I think we touched on in the Sarah Bartman episode, mm-hmm. but ethnocentrism is basically the centering of one's own culture or ethnicity as a frame of reference to judge other cultures, practices, behaviors, beliefs, and people instead of the standards of that particular culture involved. Yeah. We see wasp culture do this a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like all, like, I don't know what else they do, but to be like, oh, this isn't the way that we do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, all of this is happening while uh, the term Asian American, it didn't exist in Amer- in like the American lexicon. Right. Instead, what we had was the term Oriental. Mm-hmm. And that was used as a blanket statement for everybody who came from, this is, okay, for everybody who came from that section of the world. Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk briefly about Orientalism, uh, about the word Oriental and Orientalism. So the Orient was a term used to encompass pretty much anything that belongs to the Eastern world in relationship to Europe. Mm-hmm. This, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to put a pin in that. The Orient is the antonym to the Occident, which is the Western world. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the term Orient is used to encompass pretty much everything from Turkey to Japan. Yeah. I mean. That's like a lot. It's a lot. I mean, you're talking about the Arabian Peninsula, Cyprus, Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, the Palestinian territories, Syria, Turkey, sometimes Afghanistan, China, Japan, North and South Korea, Mongolia, Taiwan, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Peninsular, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I, and if you stop for a moment to think about the vast array of cultures and practices and peoples and traditions and customs yeah. in that half of the world, it is appalling that back in the day, they were just like, that's eh, all the Orient. Yeah. And everybody from there is basically the same. Right. Well, it's all like foreign and exotic and dangerous. I mean, like just quick sidebar like mm-hmm. one thing i didn't get into last week with hp lovecraft is that he was all on top of everything else he was also an orientalist <sighs> and course. like you know he was very inspired by like you know 1001 arabian nights and stuff so then he did his like white guy in providence version of that and that's where like <laughs> like i mentioned the necronomicon mm-hmm. well that was supposedly written by the mad arab abdul alhazred and if you look up the name abdul alhazred it makes no fucking sense it's just something that lovecraft thought sounded yeah Muslim. you know yeah. so it's that kind 
kind of thing. Yeah, very much so. And that's basically like what we're dealing with when we talk about Orientalism. It's this very sort of like generic, confused, Mm -hmm. superficial idea of what everything on that half of the world is, is about. Right. Okay. So to put a finer point on that, um, Orientalism refers to the imitation or depiction of aspects of the Eastern world. Mm-hmm. Currently, Orientalism refers to a general patronizing of Western attitudes towards Middle Eastern, Asian, and North African societies and Western scholarship about the Eastern world. It is inextricably linked to the imperialist societies who produced it. Right. So you like you cannot talk about that kind of stuff without acknowledging that it was created by Europeans and Americans. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry's. Um, <laughs> Orientalist work in, is is inherently political and servile to power. Mm-hmm. Um, in his book, Orientals, Asian Americans and Popular Culture, author Robert G. Lee states that, quote, race is a mode of placing cultural meaning on the body. That might be like the clearest definition of race that I've ever heard. Right. Like that just something about that clicked with me. So when non-Asian actors put on yellow face, they aren't playing Asians. They're playing Orientals. Right. um, Right. Which smushes, again, everything about the Eastern world through like a white Western lens. Right. So it's probably not gonna go very well no (laughs) so wait you're saying this isn't gonna be like a happy story so (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's just not gonna be accurate um uh, this is a quote from the orientals and hollywood thesis that i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. americans do not see asian countries as individual unique nationalities but instead as one orient which is peculiar and inferior because of its differences Mm -hmm. and that word Um, peculiar seems important yeah yeah okay so yellow face in hollywood for the most part i'm going to be speaking about uh the way that asian actors were treated and the way that asian characters were depicted in hollywood Mm -hmm. um just because film is so, because it's film, because it's everywhere. Yeah. So from the beginning, Hollywood is choosing to have Caucasian actors portray Asian characters in yellowface rather than hiring Asian actors to play the dang roles. Right. And there were some, and I'll talk about them a little bit later on. There were some. Um, so why? Why are they doing this? Mm-hmm. There are a few reasons for this. The first one is that many directors, producers, and studios claimed that they were unable to find suitable talent mm. uh, to cast these roles. Of Like, of course, this is bullshit. There were, yeah. like I said, there were several Asian actors or actors of Asian descent in Hollywood, but that's what they said. This is actually probably much more likely about job security for white actors and about white actors. This is fucked about white actors playing the oriental stereotype better. Well, of course, because it's a mm-hmm. stereotype. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Like the, yeah. I think it was the thesis that talked about like if you were to have somebody like Anime Wong play an Asian character that wasn't a trope. Yeah then it was there for the whole world to see this like full-bodied Asian character. You have have a nuanced, realistic (laughs) Asian character, which is going to make the waspies like real uncomfortable. So yeah. Yeah. If you're talking about a group of people that you want to remain dehumanized, like we're saying, it won't do to have actual Asian Americans playing Asian characters. Uh, You need garish portrayals or else they'll look human. Yeah. Um, And then people will realize that these like exotic oriental 
financials are just human beings like everybody else. There is also stuff in there that I'm not going to get too into because it starts to deal with like acting theory Mm. um, that has to do with people being like, oh, well, you know, like kind of going along with like, well, there just are no good Asian actors. The thing is, is that it's being judged against this very Western ideals of acting and not allowing for anything. Either like Royal Shakespeare Company acting or like Stanislavski or something. And I mean, like even just like, you know, Hollywood. Yeah. You know, it was. Which at that time all came out of vaudeville and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's awful. Um, yeah. Again, we're dealing with huge anti-Asian American sentiment in the country. And because film is something that transcends like economic, racial, and even like national boundaries, film mm-hmm. had the capacity to like positively or negatively influence important audience opinions. Right. And again, that plays into the thing of like, well, you know, we don't really like, especially in like California at the time. Like, we don't really like that there are all these Asian people here. So we certainly don't want people in the rest of the country thinking this is a good that they're like human. I don't right. know. It's 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 a little it's pretty fucked. So film ends up having a sizable role in supporting the pervasive exclusion of Asian Americans from U.S. society, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, also, I think something to think about when you think about all of this stuff, when we talk about representation and it mattering and all that kind of stuff, it's because of this. It's because yeah. everybody has access to movies. And if you only see a certain nationality, a certain race, whatever being portrayed in a certain way in film and TV, like it's just, it's, it's, there's a lot of power there and it's been wielded irresponsibly. Right. Well, I mean, it goes slightly back to what I was saying about Candyman, even though that was a movie that was written and directed by a white man mm-hmm. based on a short story by a white British man. You know, the fact that it was making, I think, a good faith attempt to depict the characters in this environment in a human way and not leaning mm-hmm. into like, oh, they're all gangbangers and drug addicts and everything. Right. Like a lot of fans, you know, black fans of that film have cited it as like feeling seen. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. Like if your only experience with your race or culture on film is either not seeing them at all or seeing these grotesque caricatures, you know? Yeah. Like that stuff starts to sink in. Right. Um, so, I've had I've had a couple of conversations with actors that are like, that's not real and it doesn't matter and it should just go to the best person. It's um, not Scarlett Johansson. I mean, I should be able to play a tree if I want to. Right. Which like, <laughs> I mean, and, and I mean, like in a perfect world, yes. If it was an even playing field, yeah, maybe. Right. Maybe that would be okay, but it's not. For anybody who might not know this, I think that things are changing now. But in, and again, I'll speak, I'll speak just for the theater world here because my experience in film is is nowhere near as extensive. But if you are an actor of color and it doesn't matter what color you are, you don't get put into the leading man, leading lady file. You get put into the black file, the Asian file, the Latino file, whatever. And sometimes it's not even like that. Sometimes it's like you get put into the thug file. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's you get put into the terrorist file. The Um, sassy best friend file. Right. Um, Again, all these caricatures and stereotypes right and this and let me also be clear here that what i'm talking about goes beyond race and it also goes to orientation it goes mm-hmm. to physical size it goes to physical ab- 
ability. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of fucked. Um, it's not kind of fucked. It's really, really fucked. And the thing is, is that nobody ever goes, you know, race isn't stipulated in this script. So let me like look through some of the other things and see if there are people that we could call in. That's not how it works. Yeah. That's something I've talked with my students about in screenwriting where it's like, you know, the way we used to talk about character ethnicity, you know, when I was learning is like, well, leave it open unless the character's race is important to the character. You want to leave it open for the casting director to find the best actor. But the thing is, but is that's that, that always happens. defaults. Yeah, it always, always defaults to white. So the movement now is like, no, be specific about characters, races, because otherwise you're just going to end up with a bunch of white people. Yeah. 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 You'll end up with a lot of thin, able-bodied white people. And people will point to like Denzel Washington and be like, well, no, that doesn't happen with him. But I'm like, but he's Denzel fucking Washington. Like we're talking working actors trying to get a leg up. Right. We're talking actors in regional theater, actors that are are moving to LA. It's that kind of a, it's that kind of a thing. Okay. Let me, let me step down from my little soapbox. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The second... I was going to say, like, it's it's a good soapbox to be on. So. Okay. Well, good. Then I'll keep it out. I'll keep it close by unless, uh, in case I need to hop back up there. Okay. Um, the second is the Hayes Code, which, Scotty, I'm sure you're aware. Uh, mm-hmm. You're familiar with the Hayes Code. Oh, yes. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So this, it kind of came out of, like, the 1920s Hollywood. You know, even way back at the beginning, all the squares in the middle of the country were like, oh, it's so much decadence and it's corrupting the morals of our youth and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And so all these movies, like the movie Scarface, the original, I think from 1931 or 32, you know, these were seen as like dangerous movies. So in an effort not to be uh, censored by the government, which was what was being talked about at the time, the Hollywood studios formed the Hayes Code and they got this guy, I don't remember his first name, Hayes. He was a former postmaster general. And they were like, you basically come up with a code to tell us what we can and can't do in our films. And the thing about Hayes was he was like, super conservative like mm-hmm. i think he was like a presbyterian minister or something yeah so he was like no sex you can never show like a criminal succeeding through violence violence always has to be answered with justice like all these just restrictions mm-hmm. um, that cover basically every aspect of filmmaking up until mm-hmm. about the 1960s when it started to fall apart mm-hmm. and that includes stuff like childbirth and pregnancy yep and that was like seen on the same level as as violence and sex and drugs and that kind of stuff that's why i can't remember if i mentioned it here but in the movie psycho it was like everyone was scandalized that you see a toilet in the movie yeah you know stuff like that (laughs) i see a toilet every day right i Um, mean back then people were seeing toilets every day i know it's so weird um and another big thing that was in there was i want to make sure i think i'm saying this right miscegenation is that how i is that how you say that i think so so miscegenation is basically like the mixing of races right so it's it's it's, it's interracial relationships and 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 sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that the Hayes Code was like, nope, you can't do it. You can't have yeah. it at all. There are, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I saw, uh, I, I saw like 50% that said yes and 50% that, that were sort of like, ah, there's not really enough evidence for that. But some of these sources say that the Hayes Code really only explicitly stated relations between white and black actors and characters. Hmm. But that it that was then used to exclude members of any race. I mean, yeah, that's not yeah. Yeah. Susan Courtney in, I think this is a book, Hollywood Fantasies of Miscegenation, says of the Hayes Code, 
quote, forms and effects were considerable and unique. It shaped not only who could be imagined doing what with whom, but also how spectators would be cinematically trained to read race. Mm -hmm. Courtney also argues that because uh, the code only referenced miscegenation between white and black people, this is interesting. It, quote, dichotomized our understanding of race into a white and black binary right and transferred understanding of race from bloodline to visual representation right with the help of the miscegenation clause classical hollywood cinema gradually shifts the location of racial meaning from invisible discourses of blood and ancestry to visual discourses of skin color and cinema itself and yeah well and i think this this has like a lot to do with i mean it's a thing i've talked to you a lot about about how like jews sort of became white over time mm-hmm. it's this flattening of racial and ethnic context right know? and it's something that i i want to talk about a little bit here in that what is happening here is like like she says that it race became this black and white binary right. and anybody who didn't fall into the black or white binary sort of got put into this big corral mm-hmm. of of other right but it created this like weird loophole so that what could happen was is that like the wasp power structure could say we're not being racist towards you because you're not black you're not of a different race Mm -hmm. but we're still gonna treat you like shit yeah like we're still gonna do all this stuff to you we're gonna make all these things we're gonna make it illegal for you to do stuff we're gonna lynch you we're gonna you know exile you we're gonna murder you and do all of this stuff but it's not racial because you're not black Mm -hmm. um that has created a trickle down effect of the way that people of color i think see themselves there is this idea of being protected under the banner of whiteness that is is true in a lot of ways and is not true in a lot of ways as well. Right. Um, and I guess my main point here is to just posit that when you look at race as only a black or white binary, you are becoming a tool of white supremacism. So yeah. just notice those things when you have those, when you well, have those I, opinions about that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, that's like what I've been talking about with Jewish identity is we sort of found ourselves lumped into whiteness and then Jews post Holocaust were like, yeah, let's do that because they won't murder us. But what I think we've discovered is that that does afford a certain amount of white privilege that can then be taken away as soon as someone decides to take it away. Right. And I think that that's, this is also not me saying that anybody who falls you know, who, who would, who would end up in that corral of like people of color, that those, those experiences are universal across the board Yeah, no, and, it's and different that, they, that they, that they equal, they all, you know, I am not saying that. And I understand that there definitely is the privilege of people who appear to be white is real. There is safeness in yeah. proximity to whiteness. Yeah. I understand that again, it's all just a thing of like, just remember that like when you buy into that narrative, if you are a socially aware, socially conscious person the tools of white supremacy are working on you yeah yeah exactly and yeah. and just always keep in mind that everything is more complicated than you might yeah. at first think yeah the third reason was that studios felt that americans meaning white audiences were simply not ready for movies with all asian casts they just simply couldn't fathom it the poor like, little they, heads they, would explode right i mean if they i mean well if they were going to see a toilet and lose their minds i mean yeah like yeah i mean maybe they were right <laughs> like, yeah maybe they were right <laughs> it's just so funny to me that they're like 
like you expect a bunch of white people to go to the movie theater and not see any white people. And it's like the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> like, and like, then again, heads explode. Yes, heads explode. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about playing Asian. Okay. Um, in her, <laughs> get a load of this shit. In her 1992 book, Imagining the Role, Makeup as a Stage in Characterization, Jenny Egan says that a, quote, oriental person has five distinct features. Mm. One- Straight this is black, not going to end well. I'm sorry. Yeah, straight black hair with sparse facial hair. Two, epicanthic, the epicanthic flap, which uh, I think now might more commonly be known as a monolid. Mm-hmm. Three, a round flat face. Mm-hmm. Four, a button nose with a low bridge. And uh, five, a short rosebud mouth. Uh, okay, so this I'm in just and of already it's, like feeling a little nauseous about that. Yeah, it's it's just it's a very ooh it, it it just it feels very it feels very like eugenic. It feels very mm-hmm. um what's the studying of the skulls? Phrenology. Yeah, yeah, it just feels very like reduced to a set of features. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's 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 pretty horrific, but this description actually goes much further than any other cosmetic tutorials. I think mm. that continue to exist. There's another book that, that came out in 1995 that is also like, yep, this is how you do This is how you turn yourself into an Oriental. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I guess I'm and, not surprised, but that's disappointing. Yeah. And I mean, I'm fairly certain that I had this this book. I took a, you know, as a theater major, you end up taking stage makeup classes. Mm -hmm. And I'm fairly certain that I remember seeing this. Wow. So most other tutorials really like, again, this all sounds horrific, but it goes a lot further in sort of like looking at Asian features Mm -hmm. in an effort to replicate them. Most other tutorials really only focus on the epicanthic flap. And like, that's it. That they're like, if you can get that, then you're an Asian and off you go. Yeah. Off to the races. So the result of this is like, it's like a grotesque caricature of, of Asian features. So now we're going to get into some examples of, uh, of this. Yay. Yay. So we have the aforementioned, uh, DW Griffith films, Mm -hmm. um, Myrna, is that the way you say your name? Myrna Loy? I think so. Okay, well, she was Hollywood's go-to girl for playing Asian characters. Ugh. She played. I think uh, I knew that. Yeah. She played Asian characters in over a dozen films. Wow. In 1929, we had the mysterious Doctor Fu Manchu, which was played by Swedish American actor Warner Oland. So he's Swedish. Yeah, that okay. Yeah, that tracks, right? <laughs> that tracks. Sure, why not? Oland would go on to play Dr. Fu Manchu in The Return of Dr. Fu Manchu and Daughter of the Dragon. There mm-hmm. is, if anybody wants to fall down this rabbit hole, there is a fascinating God, this guy, I think it's I think it's Robert G. Lee. He spells out, I think it's called the six six faces of the Oriental. Mm-hmm. And it's the basic six tropes that Asian characters fall into. And it's like the pollutant, the coolie, the model minority. It's, and, and, and I'm like, he is Asian and he's like, Hey, this is how we are represented in pop culture. We all fall into one of these things. Right. And that's it. But it's a fascinating rabbit hole to fall down. uh, If you're interested in learning more about that in 1932, Boris Karloff, took up the Fu Manchu mantle in mm-hmm. the in the pretty like dang racist and offensive the mask of Fu Manchu. I've actually seen that one. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fucking racist. I watched it because I was a Boris Karloff fan and kind of wished I hadn't. Mm. 
Sorry, that's me sipping my 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 fruit punch. <laughs> right into the microphone. Okay, which takes us to Charlie fucking Chan. Throughout the 30s and 40s, the character of Chinese-American Charlie Chan was played by Warner Oland again, who I believe also was another one like Myrna Loy, who kind of made a career of playing Asian characters. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Toller and Roland Winters. Chan was based on a real life person, Chinese Hawaiian detective Chang Apana. And while Chan wasn't the normal like evil Chinaman that we had been seeing, I think with the Fu Manchu movies, mm-hmm. he was accommodating, unthreatening, removed from his homeland, not fluent in English, which always translates as dumb. It, yeah. It always reads as dumb. Right. That's... I. <laughs> That's a whole other, that's a whole other soapbox. Um, So in other words, Chan was a benevolent other. Yeah. Non-threatening, bumbling, that kind of stuff. Frank Capra's 1933, The Bitter Tea of General Yen. Um, Get a load of this shit for everybody who's a big Frank Capra fan. As stated in Capra's own biography, he conducted an exhaustive search for an Asian actor to play the Chinese lead in the movie. Uh, He says, quote, I looked for a tall, overpowering, real Chinese, but there were no tall Chinese in casting directories or even in laundries. I mean, we could spend a while unpacking that, but it's, oh yeah, I don't even think we need to. Yeah, I think, I mean, I get you. I think you guys are all, I think you all are picking up what we're throwing down over here. Capra sought what he considered authenticity. And when he couldn't find a real Chinese actor to play the role. Just to clarify, she's like doing air quotes. I'm about to fly away from the air quotes that I'm doing over here. He settled on Swedish actor Niles Astor, Mm. whose quote, impassive face promised the serenity and mystery of a centuries old culture. What? Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, the fucked up thing what? is, I think he thinks it's a compliment. I think he's like, I did a good job because I didn't just slap a bunch of yellow face paint on him. Yeah. And I tried. I went, I even went to the laundries and I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> to the laundries. I, right. Okay. Which, okay. So Capra reportedly like didn't like the way that traditional yellow face looked he found it cartoonish and ugly so Mm -hmm. instead of painting his lead actor yellow he looked for other ways to authenticate this quote unquote oriental look and he went about this by using prosthetics to simulate the epicanthic flap trimming astler's eyelashes to one third of their normal length and having eyelashes mm -hmm. those have fucking nerve endings in them you can trim your eyelashes yeah that scares the shit out of me anyway go ahead yeah i mean i don't want to do it i won't do it but it's not gonna hurt if you trim your eyelashes if you pull them out maybe yeah okay scotty sounds unconvinced (laughs) i'm very unconvinced It's just like cutting your, okay. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. That's a whole other episode. Do eyelashes have feelings? Um, <laughs> um, he also had this dude walk with this like weird stiff gait. I've watched a couple of clips of it and I was like, yeah, wow. I, I, mm. What's he doing? Yeah. Again, in his biography, Capra says of the result, quote, of certain he was not Caucasian. Okay. Good job. (laughs) Pats on the back all around. Yeah. Like he was, he was legit. Like, I mean, I know he doesn't look Asian, but he doesn't look Caucasian either. And that's good enough. Yeah. Hand me the Oscar, please. Well, we'll get to that in a sec. 
Okay, so next we have Anime Wong and the absolute shit show of the good earth. If you watched the series that came out uh, on Netflix earlier in the pandemic called Hollywood, which I did, and I have watched it several times Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like my feel-good show, Mm -hmm. uh, they talk about this story in it, and that's where I first heard about it. Anime Wong, she was the daughter of second-generation Chinese parents. She was born in L.A. in 1905. She's widely considered to be the first Chinese American movie star and her career spanned silent films, talkies, TV, stage, and radio. Wow. Like, she was out there working. She was yeah. awesome. In 1935, MGM was getting ready to make Pearl S. Buck's novel, The Good Earth, into a movie. Buck apparently was like, hey, I would really love an all Asian cast. And the studio mm-hmm. was like, you got it. You betcha, Pearl. <laughs> right. right on that. Right. So The Good Earth is about Chinese farmers struggling to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, The studio refused to consider Anime Wong for the lead role of Olan, who's Mm -hmm. the wife. MGM had already cast white actor Paul Mooney as the male lead. And again, they were like, oh, the Hays Code. Sorry. Like, our hands are tied. Blah, blah, blah. Paul Mooney, who, by the way, I believe played Scarface in the original Scarface. Okay. If you can go and watch, it's like five minutes long. It's such a long trailer. It's obscenely long. (laughs) But go and watch the trailer for The Good Earth. It is, again, it opens with Paul Mooney opening the door and he's in full yellow face. Mind you, it's a black and white movie, but he's in full yellow face. Like he should, like he showed up on screen and I, I guffawed. I was like, there's no way that Mm -hmm. people were like, yes, this looks great. (laughs) Again, Oscars all around. Yes. So they'd cast Paul Mooney. They were like, nope, sorry, Hayes Code. We, we can't cast Anime Wong. But Chinese American actress Su Yong was cast as the Chinese aunt who was married to the uncle, which was played by Walter Connolly. So it's just, they just didn't want her to play the lead. It was just, well, and it was just like, there's a lot of stuff in here that makes it very clear that stuff with the Hayes Code, it just like depended on was, the mood of people that it day. It was very arbitrary. It was very political. Mm-hmm. MGM offered Wong the role of Lotus, uh, who's like this deceptive concubine. Of course. Mm-hmm. And Wong responded, quote, if you let me play Olan, I'll be very glad. But you're asking me with Chinese blood to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese characters. Yeah. So she basically was like, eat a dick. Yeah. And um, and was like, no, I'm not going to take this fucking like dragon lady concubine role that you want me to play. Producing Irving Thalberg, when asked about why he didn't hire Wong, said only, quote, I'm in the business of creating illusions. I mean, that's just nice. the biggest cop out you can imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. The role eventually went to German-American Louise Rainier. I don't know if that's how you say her name. I Rainier. think that's correct. Okay. Rainier won why acclaim for the role and would go on to win an Oscar for her work in the film. Yeah, She won the most prestigious acting award for a gross misrepresentation of an Oriental, a race made up by American pop culture. Mm-hmm. By the way, if the if all of this isn't just like, you know, making your jaw drop, Louise was supposed to play the role in a full face rubber mask to cover her very European features. Like nightmare. So like leather leather face, basically. (laughs) Like, 
I cannot imagine something more horrifying. I'm already a little creeped out by masks. I'm not going to lie. They already creep me out. Yeah. I would have to, if I was on that movie, I'd be like, I have to quit. I can't look at this bitch. No. Every day for the next however many weeks or months. Like, no way. I'm terrified. You have to send me to therapy. Yeah. This was not the only time this happened to Wong in case that you were hoping that this was like just a one-off. Oh, it happened to her. I, I I don't think I wrote it down, but it happened to her again where it was like, yeah, where it was like, well, and it was also things that it was like, she had been cast. Oh, God, what was the story? I'm not going to remember. I it out. But yeah, didn't happen just that once. Happened to her repeatedly. She still went on to have a pretty banging career. Uh, mm. Good for her. Mickey Rooney's You yep. Gotta Be Shitting Me portrayal of Mr. Yuniyoshi in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, I knew you were working up to this one. Yep. Okay, so for the film, Rooney's character, he was buck-toothed, he was obscenely stereotyped, um, just gross stereotype of a Japanese person. Producer Richard Shepard has said, quote, if we could just change Mickey Rooney, I'd be thrilled with the movie. Director so he, Blake- So he realized. Well- Put a pin in that. Okay. Director Blake Edwards said, quote, looking back, I wish I'd never done it and I would give anything to be able to recast it, but it's there and onward and upward. In 2008, Rooney said he was heartbroken about the criticism and that he never received any complaints about his portrayal of the character, which makes me wonder if these other two were just like, I can't imagine that he came onto set and he was doing this stuff and everybody was like, this seems a little dicey. I'm sure they were laughing it up. I'm sure Mm -hmm. they thought it was fucking hilarious. And now they're kind of going back and being like, oh, well, yeah, it was so bad. And we totally should have changed it. And I wish we could, but we can't. And please rent breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, (laughs) yeah. You know, and I like, I'm not trying to give Mickey Rooney more credit than he deserves there. But to me, that sounds like the reaction of somebody who was like, it's news to me that this was offensive. Yeah. I mean, there's an honesty to what he's saying, whether you like it or not. I mean, right. to give slight devil's advocate, maybe like the only thing I wonder about, what was it? Blake Edwards was the director. And then I can't remember the producer's name. If we are to give them any credit for any sincerity there, it would be, you know, maybe rather than like sort of covering their ass later, but maybe like reflecting back and being like, we shouldn't have done that. Right. And that 100%. And like, that's what we want for people, right? Right. Is for them, like everybody does stupid shit. Everybody makes bad mistakes. Everybody does things that are hurtful. And we hope that they can look back later on and be like, that was super fucked. I shouldn't have done that. If I could, Mm -hmm. I'd go back and change it. Of course. So Um, it's like, maybe we can, you know, give them a little bit of grace there, but at the same time, also knowing Hollywood, maybe it was damage control. Yeah. And just a clear, I think, like, again, I'm I'm not trying to be like a, a Mickey Rooney apologist, which whenever I hear Mickey Rooney, I always immediately think of Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Very they different people. so different. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's the, that's what's going on in my brain. Um, so I'm not trying to be a Mickey Rooney, like apologist here. To me, it seems pretty clear that when they were doing it and until people started to be like, Hey, Hey, this is bad. Everybody thought it was okay. Oh, I'm sure at the time, nobody questioned it. Long duck dong in 16 candles. 
Oh, yeah. Um, this is not an actual, this like the actor who plays Long Duck Dong is Asian. So this mm-hmm. is not yellow face, but it's, it's pretty gross. Okay. So um, an article from NPR said that this character was an Asian American stereotype for a new generation. Yeah. Dong is shown as being awkward, difficult to understand and lecherous. And if that's not bad enough, the character also plays into the stereotype of Asian men being weaker and more feminine in yeah. his relationship with the American girl that he gets involved in. I don't know which one is worse. I don't know if a white person dressing up as a different race is worse than forcing a person of that race to play a gross stereotype of their culture. Yeah, that's a definitely like that's a coin flip. Yeah. And I've I've never seen 16 candles all the way what? through. What? No, well, I'm not it's not my <laughs> but like <laughs> um, what? I have definitely seen clips of Long Duck Dong and it just kind of solidified for me. I was like, I'm less interested in seeing that movie than I was before. So. Look, I loved 16 Candles. I loved The Breakfast Club. I do like The Breakfast Candles, Club. 16 Candles is, 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 is particularly problematic. Yeah. It's problematic in like several ways, isn't it? It's yeah. It's, there's a lot. There's yeah. like, uh, you know, some like weird kind of like rapey stuff that happens. That's all that, like, <laughs> that was an eighties thing. <laughs> I mean, that was definitely Revenge of the Nerds as well. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oops. Uh, yeah. You know, like, uh, yeah, there's some stuff. But, you know, like, damned if I don't still love that final scene. Fuck. Mm. It's a good it's a good final scene. I mean, maybe maybe I'll watch the final scene to know. What okay. <laughs> okay. Cloud Atlas. Oh, that's oh, recent. My God. Yeah. Cloud Atlas has a Korean storyline in which every major male character is played by I think the same <clears throat> non-Asian actor in mm-hmm. Yellowface. Mm-hmm. Um that movie came out in 2012. I was gonna say by the way, in case <laughs> you like- were hoping that this was like done by yeah. now. No, that one was real recent. Yeah. And just in case anybody, you know, is sitting there being like, Amelia, what about theater? I'm going to rake my preferred medium over the coals as well. So let's talk about Miss Saigon. Oh, yeah. <sighs> um, full disclosure, uh, Miss Saigon was the, I think it was maybe like the second or third Broadway musical I'd ever seen. And mm-hmm. at the time I was like entranced. I mean, they land a fucking helicopter. It's a full-size actual helicopter and they land it on stage. There's a lot of spectacle. The songs are super pretty. And you know, when I was like 12, I wasn't really, I wasn't quite thinking about this kind of stuff, but let's talk about the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. So Miss Saigon uh, not only features stories of either over-sexualized or subservient, submissive Asian women being saved by uh, white Americans, the OG original West End production cast Jonathan Price, who is a, to, to the best of my knowledge, a Caucasian mm-hmm. actor, uh, in the role of the engineer. The engineer is a mixed race French Vietnamese pimp. I mean, he's a pimp in the play. Yeah. Um, Price wore eye prosthetics in the West End production. Scotty has seen them. I sent him a picture. Yeah. They are. It's, like, it's You first <laughs> sent it to me and I almost laughed because I was like, this has to be a joke. And then I remembered you were what you were doing your topic on. I was like, oh, this is not a joke. It is, again, a little bit like what I was saying about with Paul Mooney and the Good Earth is that when you when I saw the picture, I was like, who passed this? Who saw this? What producer, what director had Jonathan Price walk into the rehearsal hall with these eye prosthetics on and they were like yes yeah perfect job done well done makeup person yeah it it was it was real bad 
Yeah, it's real bad. Um, so when the show moved to Broadway, protests were held and Actors' Equity, the uh, Actors and Stage Managers Union, refused to condone the casting of Jonathan Price mm-hmm. in the role until it did. They 100% caved. They reversed their decision. Price went on to play the role on Broadway. He won a Tony for it and he seemingly has no regrets in Which playing is- the role. Disappointing because I like Jonathan Price as an Me actor. Too. But. Me too. Fucking Mikado. Mm-hmm. Okay. Real talk. Uh, again, full disclosure. I've never seen the Mikado. I've never listened to the Mikado. I have no idea what it's about mm-hmm. other than the fact that I know that it is about, I can't remember if it's Japanese. I think it's Japanese. I feel like it's Japanese. Yeah. Um, it's Gilbert and Sullivan, right? Yes. Yes. What I do know about it, I I can't speak to what Gilbert and Sullivan were thinking when they wrote the goddamn thing. I don't Mm -hmm. know. What I do know is that it is a piece that shows up in community theaters and like civic light operas Mm -hmm. all the fucking time. And that's that's where I saw it. mm -hmm. And they always cast the fucking thing with non-Asian actors in yellow face. Right. Always. There was, um, I think maybe in like 2015, it was a big, maybe it was like the Gilbert Gilbert and Sullivan players or something that was like, we're di- like, here's the cast of the Mikado. And like the Asian American community was like, there's not a single Asian person in that cast. Like, and they were like, Oh, like, right. Wow. Oh. Um, <laughs> Like it's theater and like imagination and you know, whatever. It's like um, that way of typing online where it's every other <laughs> letter is capitalized. A little bit. Yeah. I, look, guys, Gilbert and Sullivan, they can t- they can take a break. Like mm-hmm. the, the Gilbert and Sullivan estate is not hurting. Like <laughs> just relax. Try There's something no else. yeah, just go and look for literally any other fucking thing. The King and I and South mm-hmm. Pacific. Mm-hmm. These are both Rogers and Hammerstein pieces. Rogers and Hammerstein might actually have been trying to make profound statements about interracial relationships with these two shows. Yeah. But the problem is, and I think that they were, I know with South Pacific, they were actually like really trying to look at interrelationships through, through like this lens. Mm-hmm. The problem that I have with it is that theaters community and professional alike love to do these shows in yellow face. Yeah. And then again, similarly, the community theaters and these civic light operas get super defensive when Asian Americans are like, it's the fuck, like we're, it's, it's like 2020, like you can't do this anymore. Right. Well, isn't the movie of the King and I, isn't that like Yul Brenner? It's role? Yul Brenner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rita Moreno also plays one of the, one of the mm. Asian women. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what you were saying about the brown face thing where anyone mm-hmm. with, with a non-white skin color just gets lumped in wherever they want. Mm -hmm. And I think that happened to Rita Moreno a couple of times. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that happens. Okay. So here's a list of your favorites who have also donned yellow face at some point in their career. Lon Chaney Sr., Edward Mm -hmm. G. Robinson, Loretta Young, Peter Lorre, Anthony Quinn, who, and I feel like Anthony Quinn played everything. Yeah. He was, he was doing a lot of that. Yeah. Shirley MacLaine, Catherine Hepburn, Rita Moreno, Rex Harrison. Whose idea was it to turn Rex Harrison into an Asian? I, I, I can't even imagine that john wayne i knew that one yeah marlon brando yep. lupe velez alec guinness tony randall john gilgood max von sito linda hunt linda hunt won an oscar mm. she not only played an asian person she also played a man oh, what movie is it it's a movie with mel gibson i don't um, remember yeah i know what you're talking about 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy, David Carradine, Joel Gray, Peter Sellers, Yul Brenner, Fred Astaire, and many, many more. Yeah. I mean, what did you say? It was David Carradine? Which mm-hmm. Carradine? Because that's from the TV show Kung Fu, I think. But uh-huh. Tarantino was like all in love with. Mm-hmm. So yellow face is not showing up in film quite so much, mm-hmm. but that is likely because its cousin whitewashing has become much more popular. Right. Whitewashing is the casting of white actors in roles originally conceived to be Asian or Asian American with script rewrites and casting choices used over makeup and prosthetics. So examples of this are Emma Stone in Aloha. Yep, that was one of the famous recent ones. Most of these are going to be recent. Pretty recent. Um, Tilda Swinton in the Doctor Strange movie. Mm-hmm, yeah. Natalie Portman in Annihilation. Oh, interesting. I didn't even know that. Okay. Mm-hmm. I never read that book. Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Shell. Yep. Nat Wolf in Death Note. Of Johansson's casting in Ghost in the Shell, screenwriter Max Landis responded in a YouTube video about critics of the casting, quote, not understanding how this industry works. Also, and- Max Landis is fucking garbage for all sorts of reasons. So like, you know, Me Too type reasons. So basically anything mm. that guy touches, like just, throwing the fucking dumpster okay cancel sorry that was my little soapbox (laughs) i had to get on for a second sure 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 uh johansson's and swinton's casting inspired comedian margaret cho author ellen o and keith chow of nerds of color to start a campaign of awareness around whitewashing including the hashtag whitewashed out mm-hmm um, they did a lot of work. They did a lot of advocacy work uh, around this and trying to like raise awareness about like, you know, why this is awful. A little bit more recently, the role of Lara Jean, a young half Korean woman into all the boys I've loved before. This is based, uh, this was a Netflix movie based on the book of the same name by Jenny Han. Han had to turn down initial offers to adapt the book because studios wanted a white actress to play Lara Jean. Mm-hmm. Like she is half Korean. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big part of the story. Yeah. And they really were like, but what if we see the white half of her? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and again, if, super fucking recent. What if that's all we see? Yeah. yeah. That was like 2018. Today, May 18th, 2021, the Hollywood reporter published an article stating that the university of Southern California's Annenberg inclusion initiative looked at 1300 films from 2007 to 2019 and found that Asian and Pacific Islanders accounted for less than 6% of speaking roles and less than 4% of leads and co-leads in Hollywood films. That's shameful. Mm -hmm. Again, this is, you know, when we talk about Scarlett Johansson being like, I should be able to be a tree. If it was like a quarter of the role, like if it was evenly spread, if everybody was able to play the roles that Scarlett Johansson has played, very few of them, which require a Caucasian actor to play, maybe then we could talk about this kind of stuff. Even then, I still think it's dicey when you're talking about characters of a different race. It's dicey. And it's also, it's just, it's just such a cop out. Yeah, because I mean, the thing is, is to be like, oh, well, do I have to be a murderer to play a murderer? And right. It's like, it's no, like, don't it's be a, a dick. It's, it's like, just a total straw man type argument. You know? Yes. Yeah. So like I said, that's shameful. If you want to check out some old Hollywood Asian movie stars, you can check out the work of Sesu Hayakawa, Anime Wong, Kai Luke, and Philip On. Philip On 
had a hard time being cast because his English was so good. And he went on to make a pretty good living for himself playing Japanese villains uh, Mm. for which he received death threats. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. So there we go. You can also check out movies like The Joy Luck Club, Crazy Rich Asians, uh, TV shows Fresh Off the Boat and Kim's Convenience. These are all movies and shows that feature predominantly Asian cast or are like centered around Asian stories. Uh, Joy Luck Club came first in 1993 and it took 25 years for a major studio to get behind another movie with an all Asian cast and an Asian American lead. And that was with Crazy Rich Asians. Right. Yeah. I remember a lot of, a lot of articles and think pieces about that. 25 the of years. Which all were like, um, 25 years. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 25 years. Okay, so while this can seem super bleak, (laughs) (laughs) it is important to remember that today Asian Americans, uh, like a lot of other communities of color are marginalized communities, and that includes people who are differently abled, people of color, trans people, all of that stuff. They're really making the move to create their own content Mm -hmm. um, and to put out their own stories that are told for them by them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that creates opportunities for the rest of us to hear authentic stories from the vast array of Asian storytellers that are out there. This is a great chance for you to vote with your dollars. It matters that movies like Crazy Rich Asians, that movies like Black Panther, that movies like that do well, because the big thing that studios still want to say is that American audiences don't want to see a movie with a primarily fill in the blank cast. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's bullshit. Yeah. If the movie's good, we're going to go see it. I mean, hell, sometimes we'll even see it if it's not. You know what I mean? Just just want to go out there to support. So, like I said, vote with your dollars and uh, support this work. And let's continue to, like, you know, decolonize our entertainment sources. Yeah. And that is the story of the history of Yellowface. Can I Ooh. add? Can I add to it a little bit? Yes. So, just a couple examples, and then a slightly personal story. Just one example that I thought of as soon as you were talking about this idea of is a David Cronenberg movie, actually from 1993. It's called M Butterfly. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was interesting about that? So I've got the Wikipedia because it's been so long since I've seen it. So I've got the Wikipedia page up. It says mm-hmm. it's loosely based on true events. Uh, the film concerns Rene Gallimard, played by Jeremy Irons, a French diplomat assigned to Beijing, China in the 1960s. He becomes infatuated with a Peking opera performer, Song Liling, played by John Lone who spies on him for the government of the People's Republic of China. Their their affair lasts for 20 years, subsequently marry. With Gallimard all the while apparently unaware or willfully ignorant of the fact that in Peking opera, Dan roles are traditionally performed by men. Mm. So, like, it's an interesting film. And, like, I remember it being criticized at the time for the fact that they cast a man in this role. But then it's like... But that's the role. Like, that's the point. And I think that's what interested Dave and Cronenberg in this mm-hmm. is the uh, the character played by Jeremy Irons sort of just putting blinders on about the fact that the person he's been married to for 20 years is actually a man. So it's got interesting things that on its mind about, like, identity and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the character Song Liling is is played by the actor John Lone. So it, it falls into that category of yellow face. The other thing I want to movie I wanted to mention, because I think it's a more complicated example. So I kind of want to like get your opinion uh-huh. 
on what you think about it (laughs) is the is the departed because that's a remake of a hong kong film called infernal affairs and that is definitely a movie i've heard as being accused of whitewashing interesting okay i like i i have mixed feelings on this because actually what i think that movie is trying to do is it's not just arbitrarily replacing these Chinese Hong Kong actors Mm -hmm. with white actors, like what happened to Ghost in the Shell, is that it's taking the story and then putting it in an entirely different cultural and ethnic context. Because it's like, it becomes very specifically about Boston, Boston Irish culture. Yeah. So like, I'm not sure if that qualifies as whitewashing, but I can... (laughs) I can see the argument why. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's kind of the thing too, is where like my Aquarian nature is, is coming into this and I'm able to see both sides of the argument. I think that that's a hard thing because the question, the question for me ultimately is, do we need the Boston Irish version of that movie? That's, I mean, that's the question is, could you have done a different Boston Irish gangster film? Yeah. And it's a very faithful remake, except it changes the end a little bit, but the cultural context is so, is so specifically Boston that it it does become different, you know, in Infernal Affairs, which by the way, if you guys have not seen, if you guys like The Departed, because like me, I'm a fan of The Departed. If you guys like that movie, go back and watch Infernal Affairs because it is, I saw it before The Departed. I saw it not long after it came out, like 90s or early 2000s, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like Hong Kong action at its best so well done the performances are great it's it's no less of a film than the departed that's for sure and it was a very popular movie before the departed came out but it was just it was an interesting approach to like doing this kind of remake to completely change the context and yeah and i have mixed feelings because like you just said like did they have to do the boston irish version of that yeah well and do we as an audience need the boston irish version of it you know what Mm -hmm. i mean so quick quick like interjection here because i just went to go look up m butterfly on (laughs) on wikipedia and this is saying that john lone is chinese really yeah. Oh, you know, and if I click on it, it does. Maybe I'm wrong about this, and maybe, bec- but okay. Well, this opens up a whole other thing mm-hmm. because it says I, Hong Kong born. Because I have read. Yeah. No, you're right. I'm looking at it as well mm-hmm. because I have read criticisms of that film as being a, an example of Yellowface. So I wonder where that criticism is coming from because I, I wonder, just assumed that that was true, but it sounds like I've been proven wrong. Well, I wonder if it's somewhere else in the like if it's another character. Maybe, maybe. And, and now I want to look more deeply into that. So sorry, guys, fact check in real time, but. <laughs> Um, that, that actually makes me feel better about it because I, you know, I'm a huge David Cronenberg fan and I would like to think he wouldn't fall into that trap. Right. But that, that's interesting. Cause I remember that reading reviews. So it's like critics making assumptions, I guess. I mean, maybe, but I'm also like, I mean, the guy looks like the guy's Asian. Well, I assume, cause I think it's the only role I've ever seen him in and looking at the picture. Yeah, he absolutely does. Um, I assumed it was what you were talking about prosthetics and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I've always heard this used as, as an example of Yellowface, but it sounds like yeah. that wrongly accused David Cronenberg. I apologize. Sorry. I mean, I'm also seeing that it apparently is the the film and the play got got slammed for their like orient- oh. orientalist. Well, that I wonder. That's right. It was a play. I wonder if some of the Yellowface accusations come from the original I'm play. Certain they did. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
I am certain they did. Um, That's good to know because I did. I remember liking the movie and then feeling conflicted about it. And I never did the, I never did the research to look into who John Lone was because I was just taking these critics at face value. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. We might have to do that if we ever get around to our fact check episodes. Yeah. Well, we just Um. did it. So, Um, (laughs) and then the last thing I just, I was just going to say, like, I actually, my first internship out of graduate school Mm -hmm. is working for a producer for a indie film. This would have been 2006 called the red door. It was either the red doors or maybe just red doors. I'm going to look it up. And it was also, I believe an all Asian cast and the, the producer I worked for was Asian and the director was Asian. So I just wanted to throw that out there as like, I rem- it's been a long time since I've seen it, but my memory was, it was like a really nice, like sweet little indie film, kind of family drama mm-hmm. love story. So that's just one, if you're looking for antidotes to yellow face films, that's one to to look up. Yeah. Gosh, we should maybe also include some of those, uh, some, some good Asian American and Pacific Islander, other content to put up mm-hmm. on there. How, what's, what's the, what kind of demographic do AAPI horror authors hold in the horror world? There's not very many that I, I'm, well, I should, when we're talking American or, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are a few, there's a guy named SP Somtau, who's I believe Vietnamese or Vietnamese American, who a pretty well-known horror author i know there are others whose names i'm forgetting unfortunately it's sorry like, i 100 put no, you, you on the spot with you that, did like, put me on the spot quiz. and it's it's worth <laughs> me actually looking up to and maybe include um just as like uh maybe you can throw them in our instagram stories if you're interested in asian horror though in both the movies and the literature there are some excellent japanese horror writers both in the manga world, but also in the novel world. Like a lot of people I think don't realize like the ring movies are based on novel. I believe the novel is called ring virus unless that's one of the sequels. And that I think kind of goes along with what we're talking about with the departed. Like, why because uh the ring isn't Mm -hmm. what what was the other one? It was the ones with Sarah Michelle Geller. This is the grudge. The grudge, like why those movies needed to be remade. Like I mean the ring and the grudge with like Mm -hmm. I mean Naomi Watts, right? Isn't American, but like the whitest of white. Right. I mean, she's Australian <laughs> and like very Australian. Yes. Well, and I, I like the ring. I like the American Me version too. of the ring. But that's one of those things where it's like, I think like with The Departed, like again, maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt a little bit. When The Departed came out, it did focus some attention back on Infernal Affairs. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people went back and rediscovered Infernal Affairs. So in that sense, it's good you're bringing awareness to world cinema in a way Mm -hmm. that you may not have otherwise i know for a fact this happened with the ring because ringu which is the japanese version was um pretty niche like i remember hearing about it back in the 90s and i could not find it i ended Mm -hmm. up having to order a vhs tape off of ebay for like 80 dollars i think Because I kept hearing about this movie and I loved Mm -hmm. the movie. And then it was like within a year, the American version came out and then Ringu all of a sudden was available on DVD, which Mm. pissed me off because I wasted $80. On a VHS tape. (laughs) On a VHS tape, but made me happy because now this movie, like people were noticing this film. So like, if you want to make an argument for why remake these movies and put them in an American context, I guess that would be the argument why. But then the question is, but then why do they have to always be white? 
casts. Like, okay, The Departed, they decided they specifically wanted to get into the Whitey Bulger mythology. That's why they chose Boston. There are reasons, whether you think they're uh, valid or not, there were creative reasons. There's not really a reason that, like, say, Lucy Liu couldn't have played the Naomi Watts role. Right. You know, so yeah, when when we get to those kind of stories, I get a little bit him and ha about it, but I certainly understand the criticism and don't necessarily disagree with the criticism of yeah. And then when you have a movie like The Ghost in the Shell, I mean, that was like that's an that's a Japanese story. It's not one that like translates. And my understanding is that the American remake of it was still set in J- in Japan like and so there's there's just no excuse for casting yeah i mean and there was also stuff about like you know that like the studio was like well maybe we can just sort of like asianize <laughs> I know that i remember like reading about that was a do discussion some cgi work and i'm like the no fact that they were just scrap it and go back to the beginning <laughs> the fact that they were talking about that like that recently is but i've told you i'm just gonna throw this out there i'm not gonna name any names um but there was a tv pilot i wrote years ago and we were pitching around and it dealt with like issues of mexican drug cartels and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i was trying to make it very morally complicated and one of the production companies we pitched it to uh, luckily me and my manager both were like nope uh, but one of the notes we got was, you know, it's really confusing who the good guys and the bad guys are. So why don't you make all the good guys the white people and all the bad guys the Mexican people? Of course. And this was a note I got within the last decade. So it's not gone. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of improvements have mm-hmm. been happening. Well, I mean, I even think about fucking, you know, we talked about this that I went to go see, I believe it was Ocean's 8. I went to go see that with. Uh, a friend and her friend and the trailer for that abomination the movie peppermint came on and this is you know oceans eight this is at the height of of trump's like anti-immigrant right anti-immigrant uh rhetoric that he's spreading around that he you know he's he's spreading these lies of people coming over the border like cockroaches and i remember sitting there and watching the trailer and being like i cannot believe that anybody signed off on this mm-hmm. right now. Like yeah. I can't, I, it's, it's so irresponsible. And, and, you know, like, look, like, you know, sitting there sort of agog and looking over to my friend and she was sort of like, what's going on? And I was like, this, yeah. this is so irresponsible. Yeah. And then Jennifer Garner, who I have no issues with, I'm sure is a wonderful woman. And I'm <laughs> You know, I'm 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 definitely not <laughs> accusing her of being a racist, but then I feel like the next thing that she went out and did was um, a movie called I think it's called Yes Day, yeah, where she is married to a Latino man and has two has has children with him, and th- like those kids are little Latinx, they are little brown kids, mm-hmm. and there's a part of me that was like, are you doing this to be like, oh hey? <laughs> hey guys i don't have any problems with brown people i promise yeah. i'm sure that that's one of those things like you hear about the stories of everyone t- coming out and saying they regret working with woody allen at this point mm-hmm. i'm sure that's one of those things that almost immediately once it was being released and she realized like the shit she stepped in she you would hope you know you reflect back and be like okay let's not make that mistake again yeah it's, you, know, you get offered a role and like you know maybe just for whatever reason she didn't really cotton on to how like racist the concept was and 
like you know like we said like hopefully what you hope from people in a situation like that is that they learn from that yeah some yeah. people do some people don't you know it's just i mean if anybody's seen the movie peppermint don't tell me about it because i don't want <laughs> i mean i i've got to admit particularly since you've talked about it like i'm curious to watch because i'm curious to see like how big of a dumpster fire it is but i don't want i like i don't want to give them any money so I'm not right gonna... and again like i have not seen it but the trailer made it very much seem you know it seemed like the narrative was like these dangerous mexicans are coming and they're gonna kill your pure white beautiful daughters Mm -hmm. and that's what's happening and like i mean always but especially during the time period that it was released it just felt grossly irresponsible right but you know i mean i'm not surprised by it because like i said the the company that gave me that note that we're not talking some fly-by-night like offices in a strip mall company it was okay tell me who it is offline Honestly, I don't even think I remember exactly who it Damn is. It. But, okay. Um, so it was also the same company that said uh, people don't care about Mexican drug cartels. Um, so why don't we make it a Canadian drug cartel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, I can't remember if it was the same company or a different company, but it was the same script. I mean, are there Canadian drug cartels? I mean, probably. I know there's mafia in Canada. Like, there's a whole mob war in Montreal at one point. So, you know, I guess you could do it, but I mean, just the reason why is like, like it was interesting. One, one set of notes was like, let's lean into the racism. Right. And then the other set of notes was like, we're terrified of the racism. So let's like not show any other races. <laughs> like, well, I mean, okay. I hear what you're saying and I am not trying to grossly stereotype Canadians, but they're widely yeah. known as being, they have a, they have a reputation as being very, mm-hmm. very kind and polite. And so the idea of a Canadian cartel yeah. is, is it's a little like funny an Amish to me. cartel. which there is by the way a show called banshee which is about an amish like crime lord but um, cool yeah well and and oddly uh this is total rabbit hole i'm sorry guys we'll wrap up here shortly but like (laughs) i almost maybe want to do an episode on the montreal well there was the much i was it a mafia thing no it was i know there's a mafia in montreal Mm -hmm. no it was a biker war in but, and it's supposed to be like one of the most bloodiest biker wars of all time where they were like just bombing each other constantly geez. yeah so okay. i mean it happens you know but, I, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know i i should not make any kind of assumptions about anybody um, i thought the note was ridiculous though because it was so clearly coming from a place of i mean like we just don't want to open up the mexican can of worms so let's just like cop out completely and make it canadian <laughs> sure like, yeah yeah on was, that note we've given you guys note. a lot of stuff to watch <laughs> Yeah, or not, as the case may be. (laughs) Or not. And uh, I think we should probably wrap it up here. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, review. Stay weird and stay curious. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.